and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This week we are going to be blasting through 50 of the best films to be released this side of the millennium as picked by myself, Marsh Davis. I'm just an idiot guy, just just some demi-human scum not worthy to screech my film opinions at you from a, the dank interior of a cave. And joining me is the eminently more qualified actual screenwriter and reportedly full human, Jamie Britton. Hello, king of movies, I'm sitting on my throne above <laughs> a cloud of, I'm guessing, a mixture of pizza boxes and old DVD cases uh, with my with my absolute judgment. <laughs> Your rightful place in this hierarchy. Jamie, welcome. <laughs> We've each picked like 25-ish films. I mean, it's not actually quite an even split because we duplicated some and then you picked others, which I wish I'd thought of. Um, <laughs> but it's actually, it's more or less like half each. Yes. And I'm really excited to get into this with you because you've, you've actually picked quite a lot of films that I'd not only not seen, but I hadn't even fucking heard of. And I thought that like until moving countries in 2016, I was really on the ball when it came to film. Like I consider myself a bit of a cineast, you know, and um, but I, I, I'm really interested to hear about some of these picks um, because I expect uh, I'll be hoovering some of these up after this podcast. Um but just sort of just before we get into that list, do you think it's been a good couple of decades for film? And sort of what's your like your engagement been with film at the cinema been across this period? Yeah, I mean it's weird, isn't it? Because it's been a considerable chunk of my life this new century. You know, I was I was fifteen in two thousand, and and now I'm thirty. Uh, how old am I? Thirty. <laughs> it's been a Too long time. Too old to remember. Years. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I'm now, you know, 22 years older than that, and um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of weird because that's that's a huge amount of time. I, you know, I remember, you know, I had a lot of fun. You know, I, this period en- encompasses the amount of time where, like, I was going to the cinema because you're in that space where you can't go and get pissed as a teenager. So the cinema <laughs> is is where you end up. You know, I was remembering going to see the movie Stepmom with my with my friend. Oh yeah, uh, a classic was, which has not made it to this list. No, Stepmom not I mean pre <laughs> pre millennial I think sort of uh, painfully pre millennial that movie. But it kind of goes through there and then like another thing I think about is like in 2003 and 2004 I was at university in London and I was completely miserable and there was really cheap movies you could go and see in the day in London because I was so stupid mm. I went to university in London. So you could go and see like movies for four pounds um and i just saw everything i saw the punisher movie wow. <laughs> i saw like you know scary movie sequels um <laughs> that i i would like and never well, let's, let's not one. spoil this list you know <laughs> <laughs> and then like and then like you know it's been a kind of real i don't know i mean people have talked a lot about you know where movies are going and the kind of the slow death of them which i think probably is quite imminent um but it is that kind of thing of like, you know, most movies are just kind of okay. And then there is a very small percentage of them, which are just the best, the best thing in the world, you know? Um, and mm. a lot of the movies on this list, like it's, it's quite low on, on comedy, I think, although I've tried to put a few in and quite <laughs> yeah. low on genre, which I feel very ashamed about. Um, but often my favourite movies, and it's I sound like such a tospy saying this, but often my favourite movies are the ones that kind of uh, break my heart, where it feels like someone's got into my insides and given me a good old squeezing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you're kind of deposited out of the film, feeling kind of 
emotionally exhausted, but with a kind of, you know, a, a, a sort of the strange sense of peace that comes with that, you know. Um, and that's that's usually what the best movies do for me. Um, mm. And it's nice that that still happens, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, it's interesting looking at this list uh, and seeing actually not quite, not very many of the sort of the big cinematic trends that have come to sort of define uh, the cinema in the last five to 10 years. I don't think we have much of that uh, in that, you know, cinema has tended now towards uh, sort of superhero films being kind of like the, the dominant tentpole releases of a year. And there's a sort of the, the rise of streaming uh, affecting the way that films are being made and how that, you know, there's more money to be made of parlaying them into multi-part series and so forth. Um, do you think that this the, this list represents like the last hurrah of cinema? Then, I mean, I I kind of do in a in a horrible <laughs> in a horrible way. I mean, I don't think so. I think it'll be here for a a, a long, long time, but mm. I think it will be much diminished. You know, and there was a kind of glory era, you know, through the kind of late nineties, you know, up until probably until the writer strike in America, which was when a lot of the in a two thousand and eight. Which went or, or around then when a lot of the studios were just like, right, we'll draw a line under that and let's stop bothering <laughs> to make, you know, uh, mid-budget movies um, and just focus on the franchises that we can sell to China and Russia and India and, mm. and and you know that kind of happened and then that combined with with the Netflixes of this world realizing that it just made more sense to rather than make a two-hour movie to make a a, tire, a tiresome nine-part series <laughs> about whatever the fuck. <laughs> So it's kind of, you know, TV has spread across. Um, I mean, this has been, you know, talked about elsewhere at length. But, I you know, I, it does make me sad because um, movies are really great because they have a, lim- a time limit on them. And that time limit is fundamental to story to a storytelling form. And once you stop bothering with that, as you do with serialized television or endlessly franchised, um, movie, you know, superhero series, which all blend into each other. Something very fundamental is <laughs> is lost. Um, uh, so I, I do feel sad about that, and I think there's still plenty of stuff popping away. But I mostly worry about TV just absorbing all mm. of the talent and all of the industry. Um, well, especially now that it's hard to get to the cinema. Yep. And it costs three thousand pounds to go to oh, the cinema. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> although same day streaming releases aren't that much cheaper. It turns nope. out. Um, but anyway, let's um, let's get into it. We've picked fifty films. It's a lot to cover, perhaps even a stupid amount to cover uh, <laughs> in a single podcast. But we will be moving briskly, uh, hopefully. Um, but uh, if you if you end up kind of itching for more in depth. Um, discussion of these films i expect that quite a few of these films i don't know if you feel this way jamie will probably feature as their own lock-ins at a later date yeah and certainly uh uh you the audience can suggest to us which ones you'd like to hear more about um there's obvious caveats applied to this this list i certainly haven't seen every movie and this is obviously a partial list of films which were powerful to us rather than some definitive catalog of all the films in existence um, and it's also not in any order whatsoever, um, with the exception, I think, probably the first film we're going to talk about is, for me, the best film, <laughs> uh, which is Phantom Thread uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, it's a sort of low-key, demented story uh, about a renowned dressmaker and his sister. 
Um, they're at the peak of their fashion powers in the 1950s. They're making all these kind of sumptuous ball gowns for duchesses, etc. And their lives are then sort of entangled with that of a young model uh, who becomes the dressmaker's muse and lover uh, before their relationship then takes on a number of much fucking stranger turns. Um, and uh, it's 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 a beautiful, a brilliant story. I will just before we discuss it, I will say we're not going to spoil anything, right? Yes, I agree. <laughs> on this podcast, I think no all spoilers. the synopses we give will be just teeing up films rather than no, because hopefully this is a, this will have a good few suggestions in that people can 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 look up if they like the sound of them. Yeah, but yeah, so Phantom Thread, uh, it's it's just an incredible film by a filmmaker at the top of his powers, incredibly measured, brilliant performances and a deeply troubling story <laughs> uh, underneath which is both incredibly funny but also sinister and weird uh it's it's a fantastic film yes i agree and it, just a complete swoon as well but particularly the first sort of act of it um with johnny greenwood i've never heard a, a score like it certainly not from him which has this wonderful aimless um, beauty to it as as you're kind of meeting this this couple and, and as they're getting together I, I i was really surprised by how good phantom fred was i don't know why i was surprised because paul thomas anderson has not really made a bad movie and always manages to do something different but yeah blimey what a what a dream uh movie yeah. phantom fred is i mean it's uh, a hard sell isn't it a, 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 to make any kind of story pitch uh, about a tailor in the 1950s. <laughs> it's, it's just like, well, okay. I mean, I, the, the second film I wanted to discuss, which I sort of paired with these in in, in the order that we, we're tackling them, is There Will Be Blood, which is uh, another Paul Thomas Anderson film, again, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, and that one tells the story of uh, Daniel Plainview, who's uh, an eccentric oil prospector. Uh, he ruthlessly pursues riches um, that will absolutely not at all feel the massive void in his soul, uh, but will poison his relationships with those he cares about and probably lead to his own destruction. Um, I, th- I think these two films are probably neck and neck in my estimations of what the uh, what the, the best film of the last 20 years is. And they're both by the same guy. Yeah, just an amazing film. I mean, I think, I mean, Magnolia is, is in 1999, so it doesn't make the list. But I mean, I saw that at the cinema um, and I th- think at the time I thought it was like maybe the best movie I'd ever seen and I still absolutely adore it and I had the script of it home I used to sort of study it and pour over it and then there was this weird thing where the next movie he made was Punch Drunk Love which is this mm. like weirdo really good but really strange Adam Sandler movie um, and then there was this long wait and I remember just being on blogs in that time waiting for this movie which was long gestating which had this mad title to finally arrive and I remember I went to see it on opening day, 10, 10 o'clock in the morning at The View in Islington when I was a student. And I went and uh, sat down in the cinema and it, it was sold out. I was like, wow, it's sold out. This is great. People are really up for seeing this new movie. And I went and sat down in an empty auditorium. And then a guy poked his head around and said, uh, the screening's been cancelled. <laughs> um, so I went back and saw it that afternoon. But <laughs> it's just such a weird feeling. Anyway, it's completely irrelevant. It's an amazing movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it was, It was. I guess I mention it because Magno, he'd done this kind of amazing one-two punch with Magnolia and Boogie Nights and then kind of taken a weird left turn with Punch Drunk Love. And then he'd kind of come back with There Will Be Blood, which feels like this kind of masterful piece of granite um, filmmaking, incredibly confident, um, incredibly unique, 
um, you know, and just like a film for the ages. And that was just a real apotheosis moment and really kind of fantastic to 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 see the whole world getting so excited about it as as they did, you know. There's an incredible solidity to his films. I'm not quite sure what it is about the the way he structures and edits his films that that lends it that feeling of kind of just immensity and gravity. But it, it, none of the, none of the films feel kind of flaky or off the cuff. Even when you get somebody like Daniel Day Lewis absolutely chewing the scenery in, and there will be blood. It just feels incredibly precise and intentional. Uh, yeah, and I think he's just I think he's just very, very good. <laughs> I think that's like he's just <laughs> one for the ages, basically. Um moving on, I think. Uh mm. to another uh, filmmaker, I think possibly uh is I mean we've we've chosen three films between us from this one filmmaker. Um Michael Haneke, is that how you pronounce it? Haneke? I think so, yeah. Um so The Piano Teacher is is one of mine. Um this is a movie from two thousand and one with Isabelle Huppert, uh, adapted from the Alfreda Jelinek novel uh, about a very disturbed um, piano teacher. Um, this is a very, very hard movie to watch, like the other movies we're going to talk to by the same director. Um, but for me, contains an absolutely perfect performance by Isabelle Huppert. I'd never seen anything like it, really, and I still think it's pretty unparalleled <laughs> as a central performance for someone who is just so disturbed and tightly wound and repressed it has such a pessimistic view of the world um (laughs) that movie that the idea that people are sort of desperate for love but when they get that love it's it's become so twisted in them what they desire that it only can hurt them and it can only twist them up even more um and it is a a very hopeless (laughs) movie i think there really isn't much light in it at all However, it does feel so vivid and real and and kind of all-encompassing. It just completely takes you over um, that movie. I haven't seen it. This is one of the... So I, uh, I, when I saw your list, I was like, oh, what are these films can I quickly see uh, last night? I could actually only to access two of them um, <laughs> on the streaming services at my disposal. Uh, this one, uh, deeply bleak-sounding uh, person you know, in, in deep sexual torment and another film about child abuse. <laughs> so, <laughs> and those were my options. So I, I decided to uh, just uh, play video games instead. Yeah, but I, I probably will catch The Piano Teacher later because uh, Michael Haneke is a supremely excellent filmmaker, as we can see from The White Ribbon, which is a film we both picked. Um, I can't remember. Did this, this is a later film of his, right? This is after The Piano Teacher. Yes. Yeah, so he's interesting because he kind of comes into the noughties after spending the, the previous decade kind of making weird, very weird, very specific movies that are all pretty like you'd call them satire or something like that. You know, there's been stuff like Funny Games or mm. um, Benny's Video. These, these films which are kind of quite experimental and he, he only kind of started doing things that were a bit more formally straightforward in the, in the noughties really. Um, and so the piano teacher is, it was at the time his most conventional movie by far. Um, it probably still is in fact, but then yeah, the white ribbon comes um, a little bit further down the line. Um, maybe we should talk about um, cachet first because that was actually um, released sure. um, next, which you put on your list, which I didn't. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is one of the kind of the, the uh, one of the films that 
really shook my understanding of what films could contain, which might sound naive. And I, I've since seen films that predate this that are obviously just as experimental and exciting. But uh, at the time, um, so it's, it features um, a successful Parisian couple, one of whose is like this literary talk show host. Um, uh, and they begin receiving these videotapes anonymously, which seem to be documenting their movements from afar, uh, followed by a sequence of much more sinister and threatening gifts uh, the message of which is not clear, but the, the wife uh, in this couple begins to suspect that something in her husband's past has provoked this, uh, all while the behavior of the couple's son becomes more and more disturbing. And uh, I think the kind of through line of Michael Haneke's films is that uh, from funny games on is that he he's, he's sort of perverse, but in a way... So I think he's, he's similar to Lars von Trier in a way, whereas I f feel like when I've watched a Lars von Trier film, um, uh, I have somehow, as the audience, been mocked. Uh, <laughs> whereas when I watch a Michael Haneke film, I feel like I've been taught a lesson. <laughs> yes. uh, and not necessarily in a particularly nice way. But there's always something kind of um, elliptical or hidden in his films. I mean, fucking cachet means hidden. <laughs> um, but they are films in which there are uh, secrets which bubble underneath the surface uh, of polite society, um, some of which may never be revealed in the course of the film. Um, and uh, cachet is particularly uh, challenging to the viewer because it features these incredibly long sequences in which nothing appears to be happening but which in which ordinary life is being surveilled uh and you you end up sort of going from sort of like anticipating what something's going to happen to sort of sort of like slightly resigned boredom that nothing is to then closely scrutinizing every single inch of the frame to see if something has changed if there's been a clue uh as to what is 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 going on uh, and I feel that there's a similar sort of thing going on in the White Ribbon as well, which is set just before the outbreak of World War One, And the film tells this very similarly sort of ambiguous tale uh, about a troubled village in Germany. Um, it's ruled over cruelly by a number of uh, powerful men uh, who's, who, ha who perpetrate uh, a, a large number of sort of secret abuses behind closed doors. Um, and these things begin to get pushed into the light by a series of escalatingly brutal pranks, uh, which sort of overthrow the order of things. And again, it's it's not quite clear who's who's responsible for this this reign of terror, uh, and yet it is it's somehow kind of working out or or needling um, secret horrors that you know that uh, polite society wish to keep hidden. Um, what did you yes. make of the White Ribbon? Oh God, the White Ribbon's so good. I mean, it's so full of dread. Again, I'm, mm. I'm quoting Superhands for the second lock-in in a row. Powerful sense of dread. The longer the <laughs> the longer the note, the more the dread. Um, but it, it really does have a powerful and persuasive, pervasive sense of dread. Uh, it, in, it unfolds in kind of fragments um, that don't necessarily all coalesce or explain themselves. It, he he does in narration at the start clarify that this is basically a movie about the generation of children who would become the Nazis. These yeah. are the people who would who would who would become those, and it is kind of about that. It is about the the state of oppression and sexual repression, um, and secrets and lies and guilt and all that kind of heady stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, a, all his films seem to be about potentially children doing terrible things. Funny games <laughs> as, as well. 
uh, you know, per- perverse, there's kind of the perverse perpetrators of that are both young men. A cachet, suspicion is thrown onto the, the, the sun, the white ribbon. Are the kids in on it? You know, it's, it's, it's all about how uh, you can keep things secret, but the impact of those things will nonetheless echo down the generations in terrible, terrible ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, he's, uh, I mean, he's kind of, his last couple of films, I think, um, uh, there was one, the sort of flash mob one, whatever it was called, I thought was okay. But like, it, 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 he does seem to have kind of rested a little bit after making a series of um, unprecedentedly like intense movies. He seems to have calmed down a bit now. Um, but I, you know, I do love um, all three of those. Um, uh, yeah, it, he seems to suggest all his characters are always called Anna and George, the most common names in France, um, and he even though he's Austrian and he always um, wants to make a movie basically about the veneer of polite society that we put across, you know, our simmering, uh, violent, turbulent lives, you know? Um, and I think Cachet is probably the best out of those at kind of hinting at what, what's at the base of these horrible things without actually going out of its way to ex- explain it. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, no easy uh, solutions in any of these films. No, no. Um, and he's a very serious guy. <laughs> I've seen him interviewed. He's an incredibly serious guy, which was why that Twitter account, that sort of Michael Hanukkah lol Twitter account, if anyone ever saw that, was very, very funny. Um, <laughs> do you ever see that? No, no. <laughs> it was very good in the early days of Twitter, someone pretending to be Michael Hanukkah, and it was all written in lol speak and stuff like that. It was very funny. <laughs> so put that in the show notes, maybe. Uh, your next one was Under the Skin, Jonathan, Fran- Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. Yeah, I mean, uh, there there is light and humour in this list, <laughs> but not yet. Uh, yeah. Under the Skin is a genuinely harrowing film, uh, the key points of which are easily and very widely spoiled, I would say. Um, I managed to get to the cinema on the advisement of a friend who said, don't read anything about it. So I managed to get in and watch it. Um, but I think even discovering the genre <laughs> that it's in would spoil it to a degree. Um, but I think it suffice to say, the premise is that Scarlett Johansson uh, plays a woman traveling around Scotland, luring men to a terrible, terrible fate. Uh, I don't really think you should know more about it than that. But I will. Um, it's, it's it's a horrendous, horrendous film. Like just the the soundtrack of it is an oral nightmare. Uh, it's it's so uh, bleak and shot through with sort of mundane misery, uh, with with something quite out of this world. Uh, in its in its sinister scope, but um, it's also very memorable to me because um, I went to see it uh, uh, at a cinema which didn't have very good soundproofing, and during one of the kind of most climactic traumatic scenes, uh, the sort of umpire music from the Grand Budapest <laughs> Hotel was pumping through the walls. <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 which is uh, a crime for which I've never forgiven Wes Anderson, and that's one of the reasons none of his films appear on my list. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I'm glad there's none of his silly films here. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I, I knew the twists and turns in Under the Skin because I'd read the book. The book's mm. amazing, actually. The book is also worth going into without um, uh, knowing anything about it. Uh, because, uh, you know, um, but the book is much more conventional. So there was a conventional film to be made there. And the film reeks of a director and his editor um, going off the deep end um, and trying to redefine the language of cinema, right? It could have been so easily have been a disaster, I think. Um, but it isn't. It manages to be wholly original 
in just about every conceivable way because the plot of the novel is quite straightforward that like i say they could have done that they could have made a very straightforward movie hmm. and instead they wanted to use it as a as to try and make a movie that is anything but and actually i think the movie once it finds a slightly more straightforward path that's when it becomes a little bit weaker um hmm. i would agree with you that the soundtrack by mika levy um who is a bit of a genius herself um is absolutely incredible um just inhuman uh, sounding um, score that seems to come from somewhere else. Uh, just just fantastic. Your next one was A Separation, which I have not seen. Oh, man, you got to see A Separation. What a movie. Um, this is a movie from Iran, directed by Asghar Fahadi um, from uh, near the end of the last decade. Um, it is a movie about a couple in Iran trying to obtain a divorce um, because the wife in the couple, who's a slightly more modern uh, person uh, wants to kind of leave the country for reasons sort of unspecified, but kind of um, hinted at, at being about some of the um, political um, problems that were going on there at the time and continue. And her husband, who wants to stay in the country to look after his infirm father, um, and they are trying to obtain a divorce, um, which in Iran isn't an easy thing to get. Um, and neither of them want the divorce, really. It's just that they want different things in life at this moment. Um, and so to get a divorce, they have to go through all these kind of legal loopholes and they have to agree to it and it has to be signed off like by the religious um, sort of leaders in, in, in where they are as well. What it is, is an extraordinarily human drama about um, people trying to work stuff out and kind of failing. It puts the individual um, at the forefront uh, of this kind of, you know, Iranian cinema is sort of famous, really, for kind of being unable to directly address the the political problems that are faced by the people living there. Um, so it does it in this movie, which is about people being separated from each other by ideology, by politics, by life, um, and manages to blend them all together into this just a really human, sad uh kind of perfect movie um yeah it's great i can't recommend it um highly enough i'll have to oh, i don't, don't know where i can even access that but it, uh i will it was nominated for an oscar so i think you can probably i think it won an oscar in fact so you can probably yeah. uh probably find that one i wanted to group the next two movies together but in respect i'm not quite sure why <laughs> um i guess i they're both uh beautiful life-affirming films um and they both sort of operate on a sort of dizzying dream logic i would say the first one's the great beauty um uh which is uh, a film by paolo uh, sorrentino uh it's about an, this sort of aging italian socialite i think he's i think he wrote like a book once which was the fated fated in the literary world and that's it he's never done another thing since <laughs> um except go to lots of parties in rome uh, but like now it's his 65th birthday. He's tired of the nightlife. He slept his way through the entirety of Italian society. Um, uh, but then like this sort of sh a shock from the past uh, occurs and it sort of makes him take stock uh, and ultimately uh, goes on this sort of like journey of self uh, rediscovery in which he recognizes the great beauty of life. Um and uh, the other film was Holy Motors, uh, which is another sort of journey of discovery, although its implications are slightly <laughs> less certain. Uh, during the course of like this single 
breathless night. We follow like a, a series of really hectic transformations of the central character who may or may not be an actor inhabiting different roles. But he sort of plunges from one persona to the next without pause. Uh, there's, it's just uh, an inc- incredibly frenetic film uh, in which the surprises just keep on coming. At one point, there's like a, a full-on uh, ensemble accordion rendition of Let My Baby Ride, uh, which just comes out of nowhere. And it's one of the best things I think I've ever seen or heard. Um, just dizzying, dizzying films. Have you seen either of these? I haven't seen The Great Beauty. I have seen um, Holy Motors, uh, which I agree with you on, is fantastic. Um, that sequence, the intermission is, it's, it's halfway through the movie, you know, where with the uh, uh, sort of promenade accordion blues rock is, I agree, absolutely, like so insanely exhilarating and amazing. Um, and generally that movie is has got some, like a real sense of energy and, and uh, verve to it, um, like you know, Kylie Minogue pops up at one moment, at one yeah. moment and sings, <laughs> they, turns into a musical, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I thought Holy Motors was it's great. I, I guess what I haven't seen The Great Beauty from what I understand about it, it has that sense of just immense confidence in being entirely yourself. You know, th- th- those that kind of sense of of being able to improvise almost your way through a world effortlessly and that can be a sort of wonderful thing to experience as, as a viewer yeah it does feel like you've been on a on a wild ride by the end of it <laughs> absolutely uh so uh, my next one is uh, captain phillips by paul greengrass if you work in television and i work in television you get lots of people who are very into paul greengrass movies right um because the sort of things he does with his like born movies um, especially, um, and, uh, you know, kind of other stuff he's done is make these like frenetically cinematic movies, which really speak to people who are kind of interested in the craft of it. Right. You know, he's like an amazing editor. Um, he does kind of extraordinary things with camera. I've always found, you know, his movies kind of, especially his more like, you know, the sort of Matt damon stuff, a bit less interesting than I, than I would like to, I think, I think I always wanted to see more in them. Um, uh, but Captain Phillips, I think, is just an absolutely perfect um, articulation of everything he's about and everything that makes him great as a filmmaker in that it is a geopolitical story about warring tribes, uh, those tribes being, you know, the, the people who uh, work on the oil tanker, including the titular Captain Phillips, played by Tom Hanks, the American military who sort of come in when things start to go tits up, and then the Somalians, um who um, come to uh, the pirates who come to hijack the boat Um, and through its, through its kind of convergence of these three forces, I think it tells a really quite exquisite kind of microcosm metaphor of, of now and of the, the kind of war between nations, the ideological difference and disparity between East and West. Um, And it uses, you know, Tom Hanks, who is this kind of, you know, uh, my uh, my dad always talks about how Tom Hanks is like the ultimate um, like personification of the military industrial complex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like there's something about his persona which is kind of uh, engenders that feeling. And I think Captain Phillips absolutely absolutely uses that in 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 how they break this character down, who is this kind of picture of um, competence and you know 
uh, uncomplicated masculinity, you know. Um, yeah, so Captain Phillips, uh, it's just fantastic. Uh, the end of it. The ending is devastating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Paul Greengrass when he's doing some of his kind of more sober documentary films. I think he's better when he's boxed in with reality. <laughs> yes. I wanted to talk about Memories of Murder next, uh, which is uh, one of Bong Joon-ho's earlier films. You may know Bong Joon-ho for his film Parasite, which was well lauded at the Oscars recently. But I think Memories of Murder is... Uh, his best film and probably the best serial killer film ever made. Um, if that is a, a, a list that is <laughs> that is acceptable to have, um, there's another serial killer film on this on this uh, top fifty list, which we'll get to later, which I think is the second best. But Memories of Murder <laughs> is the best. Um, set in South Korea, it follows this just hopelessly corrupt and inept police force as they attempt to really badly solve uh, the case of South Korea's first reported serial killer. Um, it follows it across the course of several decades and you know the changing political climate. And I think what, is, what makes it an amazing film is that it's uh, obviously in dialogue with the sort of the genres of serial killer films as they'd appeared hitherto, but in a way which is quite typical of Bong Joon-ho's films and also some of the other uh, filmmakers from his um, peerage in South Korea, it's a very uh, sort of genre agnostic film. It, it moves just completely fluidly from horror to slapstick comedy at times, uh, drama, uh, politics, and all these things just intermingle fluidly in this extraordinary seamless fashion, um, ultimately making very sort of... Uh, ambiguous film that sort of resists any moral judgments of its incredibly imperfect uh, human cast of assholes. <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, the police are not good police in this film, and yet you warm to them as you see them do karaoke, <laughs> uh, <laughs> even as they beat suspects and, and trample evidence, even as they make such a hash of uh, an important investigation. I haven't seen your next film, which is Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, but um, I, I think these two films probably share some sort of DNA. Yes, it is about a it is about a car drive convoy through the night of the Turkish countryside to find a body. So you know at the start of the movie that this guy has been killed, and the person who killed him is. Um, uh, is taking the police to find this body where he's buried it somewhere in a shallow, shallow grave out in the out in the sticks, basically. And it follows, most of the movie, it's a long movie, follows them, the various police and, and local officials trying to find this body. It just, I'd never seen anything like it when I saw it at the cinema. And he's the director, Nuri, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Nuri Bilge Salen has since gone on to make a whole bunch of movies which have you know won lots of plaudits and awards. I haven't seen any of them yet, and I keep meaning to see stuff like um, Civil War, which everyone says is fantastic. Um, mm. But Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, it just takes you on a journey, and you get to know these people, and it has this great cast of like Turkish character actors, like big guys, like lots of men. It's an almost entirely male movie. Um, and yeah, I just it, it felt like a weird form of tourism. I just felt like transported across the world to a bunch of people who, um, you know, were very different from me in, in a certain kind of way, but were incredibly human. And um, 
yeah, it's just just it was just a really extraordinary experience watching that watching that movie um, mm. because it is a sort of anti crime movie in in a way. It, it, it's one of those movies that deals in the in the pointlessness of it in the kind of you know these these are almost like bureaucrats trying to deal with an aberration in their notes you know it's this kind of men on a job kind of vibe that yeah i just think is is kind of fascinating yeah your next pick was uh, a film i hadn't heard of at all tony erdman oh my god tony erdman it's so good a three hour long comedy from germany (laughs) um Uh, yeah, it's absolutely bloody fantastic, Tony Ehrman. I think it, of all the films here on this list, this is one of my absolute favourites. It's a movie about a very, very difficult dad and his daughter, uh, who is also difficult in her own way. He's difficult in that he like um, puts in false teeth and dresses up in stupid costumes to make people laugh. <laughs> He's like this impossible, embarrassing dad. And she is his uptight daughter, who has a like job um, with a kind of um, uh, marketing company who have been uh, sort of sent to um, Eastern Europe to um, to kind of carry, carry out a project there. Um, and what he does, the premise of the movie is that he follows her there with a silly wig and a pair of false teeth and kind of becomes this character, Tony Erdman, who is the idea is that he's going to kind of help her get her mojo back. So it is a kind of, it has a kind of wackety, schmackety, romantic comedy, you know, silly knockabout thing uh, going into it. That's the premise. But actually what it is, is an incredibly rich exploration of East versus West, of um, the individual against the, you know, the forces of politics, of selfishness, of imperialism. It manages to pack all of this stuff into this movie about being an uptight, a bit of an uptight bitch and having an embarrassing dad. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It's incredible. And the central performances are all amazing. And the uh, the ending ha- has to be seen to be believed. I mean, it has several endings. It goes on far too long. It's three hours. But uh, <laughs> all of them uh, have to be seen to be believed because it feels like a movie which is like the director going, this is everything I think about everything. Blah, you know? Um, <laughs> and yeah, amazing. Brilliant movie. My oh, friend wow. went, my friend, I watched it at home and had a break halfway through. My friend went to the cinema and saw it and he, it ruined it for him because he was like, it was too long. I needed a break. <laughs> yeah. Yes, my but, bladder isn't isn't up to yeah. that, up to three hours at this point in time, I'm afraid. Yeah. I was a bit worried about picking uh, my next film. Um because it's sort of uh, slightly, I mean, it's it's kind of willfully saccharine. It's Amelie, uh, the film by Jean-Pierre Junet. Um, and uh, in light of your comment about Wes Anderson, I was also worried. Uh, but now that you, you've uh, endorsed a wackety-schmackety film, um, I feel slightly safer in picking Amelie, which is just a, just a joyous film, a, a fable-like telling of this eccentric but incredibly good-hearted young woman you know borderline manic pixie dream girl although Ah, most manic pixie dream girls are viewed externally with a male gaze whereas this is very much her perspective so it feels more allowable uh, even if she is uh, you know you know a confabulation of a of a male director um but I mean, she 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 lives in Paris, or at least like a, this fantastic version of Paris, which is fringed and tinged by her surfeit of imagination. Uh, and she seeks kind of you know, uh, and ultimately finds 
love um, whilst sort of improving the lives of everyone around her in, in mischievous ways. Um, and it's, it's Jean-Pierre Junet uh, is, uh, has a very particular style. I think it probably has influenced Wes Anderson in that there is a sort of willful unreality to it. Uh, the way that the, he uh, tends to frame uh, the narrative uh, puts it as a sort of kind of distance uh, where it's you, you're allowed to have a narrator, you're allowed to have, play with the, the the frame of the narration, um, and it's it's a very and it is a very playful film in in every way. Uh, but it's just so warm hearted and good, just uh, kind of melts my heart really. Yeah, I think it's when like I think with stuff like this, <clears throat> you know, it's easy to it's easy to sniff at something about like Amelie, but I just, no, I don't mean that. What I mean is it feels like the sort of thing, you know, you want to be annoyed with someone if they say one of their movie, favorite movies is Amelie, but actually it's one of those films that when you see it, <clears throat> it's so sincere and heartfelt and there isn't an ounce of insincerity in it that it mm. just, it just works. If there was, it wouldn't, and it would feel very cynical and weird and, and films like this, um, you know, or, or like the Hollywood version, what's that movie like? Pay it forward, you know, the Haley Joel oh, yeah. Ultimate, like that kind of vibe, um, can often fall flat because they just feel so well, they just feel insincere and, and pat and, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas right. Amelie just feels very inspired by, you know, real feelings and 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 a real a real kind of joy about the world as well. Yeah, there's a sort of artifice, I think, in a lot of the ways that uh, Hollywood approaches kind of heartwarming films uh, in that they're designed in some way to be heartwarming. Whereas I feel like Amelie is just a story of somebody who's delighted, you know, and uh, yeah, willing to it, delight. I think I wonder as well if, if Amelie was kind of part of the, you know, cause often like when a new indie movie is announced, right. And this was the model set by something like little miss sunshine, like the way that they can market mm. an indie movie is they will bring out a trailer and it'll probably have like arcade fire playing over the, over it. And, <laughs> And it, you know, you the idea is you're going to be, it's going to be heartwarming, right? That's that is the USP of this this like indie movie. It's going to warm your heart. And my feeling is always like, fuck off! I don't want my heart warmed by your, you know, movie about a family coming together against the odds. Fuck off! Um, yeah. Uh, so I and, and I think that you know it kind of ideally those movies would aspire to the kind of Amelies of this world, but I do think you do tend to get a lot of variations on. The Little Miss Sunshine, um, mm. yada, yada, yada. Well, there's a streak of darkness, I think, in, in Jean-Pierre Junet's films as well. I mean, less identifiably in Amelie, although there is, uh, you know, various suggestions of, of malice in the, in the background of it. But his uh, one of the, the, the previous films of his was Delicatessen, which is, you know, a, a love <laughs> story uh, involving a, a cannibal butcher, uh, and probably one of the gr- most grotesque orgasm scenes um, in cinema history. Um, yep. So all of that sort of is, City is of in Lost the Children, sort of source of so many nightmares. That movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to pair this with uh, another French film, but this time an animation called uh, The Triplets of Belleville. I think it was released as in the US anyway. I saw it as Belleville Rendezvous, which is a much better name, I think. Um, but yeah, that's my head, that's my head canon name of head canon name for this movie. It's definitely Belleville Rendezvous. I hate that it's been retconned to <laughs> the triplet. <of> Belleville. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's, again. It's very inspired, I think, by Jean Pierre Junet's films. It feels very fabulary in the same way. Uh, it, it's, it's lively and bizarre. It follows this elderly French woman is the central protagonist who has this orthopedic shoe that she beats people with and this slobbery dog. <laughs> 
Um, and she goes on this very unlikely uh, adventure to rescue her grandson, who is this mute professional cyclist with massive thighs, who gets <laughs> to, like kidnapped by criminals. Uh, to I can't remember what what the purpose of that is, but it's obviously something to do with the fact that he can. He's very good at just riding a bike, <laughs> um, and uh, she gets aided in this by the help by um, by three vaudeville performing triplets it's it's a very strange film which lurches off in all these different directions but it again it's just in, incredibly heartwarming in, in a very uncynical way um uh, but also with a streak of weirdness <laughs> as well i yeah, I, what, I love both of those films i haven't the, seen uh triplets in a in a long time so i should pick it up again one of the best dogs the way oh, that yeah. they the way that they will have the dog <laughs> the dog's dreams because they, they live near a house they live sorry their house is like near a railway um and the dog will have to dream of like being on the train that goes past the window round an enormous bowl of food and all sorts of stuff like that it's, uh, <laughs> it's really amazing a very um like visually like striking movie as well i still remember i've only seen that this movie like once way back when but i still remember the scene where they cross the ocean and the waves are done like these sort of skyscrapers um you know really kind of uh unique uh, art style it's fantastic your, your next film is easily the most obscure on this list uh <laughs> by a little known uh, indie series is it the, the last jedi is that is i'm saying am i saying that right Yes, I think there's an umlaut over the A, so it's the lost. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, uh, Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. Um, uh, I kind of fell out of love with big budget filmmaking over the last sort of decade or so, uh, you know, for reasons we've already gone into. And, and seeing The Last Jedi was just fantastic. Um, I mean, obviously, Chris and Chris's sister did a fantastic pod that I would. Um, uh, recommend to anyone wanting to hear some actual insight about those movies but uh you know someone says to luke skywalker in this movie you know even now looking at the horizon you know and uh and i thought that the movie did such a good job of kind of rounding up the story of luke skywalker which for me was the always the story of star wars really i didn't really care about anything else when i was a little kid I watched Star Wars and the scene where Luke looks up at the twin sunset and the the score swells and he's this kid in this boring world who wants more from, from existence, you know. Um and it kind of finishes off that story just beautifully. I, in a way that I can't I can't think of how you would improve upon it because it is a Star Wars movie, which is the first Star Wars movie really since the Empire Strikes Back to actually engage with what a Star Wars movie would be, what a, what a story that take what a story would be that takes place in this world, because all of the other movies have been essentially remakes or retreads of the basic same concept, whereas the Last Jedi is about what about not you know being the hero, what about not jumping in your spaceship and flying off towards the sunset every time something goes wrong. Um, and I thought that was such a clever twist on it. It felt like a filmmaker making, feeling like this was his one chance to make a Star Wars movie. He better do a damn good job. And I think he really, really did. And I just found it so uplifting and exciting um, after the kind of muted whatever of uh, The Force Awakens and mm. then the kind of um, absolute shit show that was. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, um, the movie is complete. You know, it has a... 
unlike a lot of the other big franchise movies, the movie tells a story with a beginning and a middle and an end, and it makes uh, it takes a lot of time and effort to make sure that that happens. And so it doesn't really matter because it exists perfectly well um, in isolation from all the whatever is around it. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely my favourite of the, um, uh, the the three recent Star Wars films. I mean, that's not a hard choice, is it really? But I mean, um, yeah, I, I suppose I feel slightly embittered towards the Last Jedi simply because it sets up so many brilliant things that are really scintillating that then just get completely dropped by the third film. But you can't really blame Ryan Johnson for that. It was but, um, it was a shame. I mean, you know, the, it was a funny thing with the reaction to that movie, which has obviously been talked about a lot. But like, I remember you know seeing that there was quite a few of the cast members who were kind of a bit pissed off with how their characters ended up um, and the way, the kind of direction that the movies took. And it was this funny thing because for me, I was reading about Ryan Johnson and him saying that, you know, he would write the story of the last Jedi out and he would keep writing out until he could, he could fit it um, on one tiny page of his moleskin notebook, you know, and, and that was how he knew he was ready to write the movie or ready to make the movie is when he could fit the, the story onto one page. And it was like, it's an instinct to put the characters in service of a narrative um, that is kind of la- really missing from a lot of cinema, especially the franchise one, especially the superhero movies, because it doesn't make sense when you're dealing with, you know, properties um, to put them in the background or not have them have their moments of badassery. But he he understands, I think, better than most that it's not about you know, making sure that a character is serviced, that isn't the most important thing. It is about making a story that people can lose themselves in. And I think almost no one bothers to do that with a big budget these days. And so it was just absolutely spectacular uh, to see him do it. Do you think you can credit sort of the the relationship that Kylo Ren has with Rey, uh, which I think is one of the only successful film, those successful elements of the third film. Do you think you can sort of credit that success with what Ryan uh, Johnson did in the second film, yes, probably. I think I think that's. I think it certainly the Last Jedi does a lot of work in giving those characters a place to be, because the first movie doesn't really. The first movie is such a mash of like, you know, um, Abrams puzzle box doodah. Um, mm. But the first, the second movie has to do so much catching up. Which ridiculously, of course, Abrams took as an affront to his own creativity, um, but still, like it means that you have those characters delivered into a movie with, with a with a functioning backstory, for example, um, and a sense of character that isn't just um, a riff on something we've already seen. I would like to talk about uh, Park Chan Wook's two films, First and Old Boy. These obviously sit together in my mind because they're by the uh, the same director, um, but I think they also sh- the things that are great about them both uh, are shared between them to some extent. Thirst uh, is the lesser known of these two films, um, and probably by far the better. I would say it's this just absolutely insanely dark vampire horror drama comedy love story, <laughs> <laughs> in the way that you know, like uh, as with. Um, um, Bong Joon-ho's films and with many of Park Chang-wook's films, mm-hmm. none of these films are exactly one thing. Uh, but this this film is about this terminally ill Catholic priest who gets turned into a vampire as, as a result of a botched medical transfusion. Um, then he falls in love with somebody else's wife 
uh, <laughs> and a lot of just incredibly comically neurotic bloodletting then ensues as he tries to kind of uh, make peace with his new thirst uh, and his uh, Catholic faith and uh, morality and all the rest of it, whilst also pursuing somebody who will become the love of his life, um, who uh, ha- ends up struggling herself with some of the same sorts of issues. It's just... <laughs> it's, <laughs> for a film that involves so much murder, <laughs> it is an incredibly sweet love story. Uh, I, I don't think I've been... Uh, as moved by uh, a love story in a, in a film as bleak as this in, in other ways, <laughs> but bleak in a very funny way. Have you seen this film? No, I always meant to. Uh, I always meant to see it because I always always thought it looked great. But you've, you've, um, I'm grateful to you because you've reminded me I need to get on this one. Oh yeah, I have seen, this, I have seen your other movie, but I haven't seen this one. I have seen Old Boy. Well, you see, Old Boy, I, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it necessarily stacks up. Um, but I, I feel like it sort of needs to be on this list because it has been so influential. Um, not least, I mean, it was obviously remade for Hollywood in a, in a terrible, terrible Spike Lee film, but. Uh, in the original, uh, this sort of drunken, dissolute, shithead salary man uh, <laughs> is just uh, abruptly kidnapped from his life for seemingly no reason and uh, imprisoned in a hotel room for 15 years, um, at the end of which he suddenly escapes and uh, punches a lot of people in a corridor. And then he tries to sort of unravel the reasons for his incarceration. Um, and it sets up this sort of... Uh, clockwork-like puzzle almost of why he's uh, been incarcerated that um, it's very sort of clever clever um, I think it's a little too kind of arch in its construction but uh, again it, it sort of seamlessly moves uh, between uh, absolutely brutal violence um, drama and comedy and romance um, in a way which I think when it sort of hit the scene as it were it was revelationary, I think. And in a way that I think a lot of South Korean films when they arrived in the West felt revelationary because a lot of the sort of um, the hitherto rules about how you deal with genre were just completely utterly rewritten. <laughs> yeah, I moment. mean, I remember coming out of this one and just being completely knocked out by it. I, you're absolutely right. I'd never seen anything like it. It was so, you know, because I'd seen, you know, Asian horror movies and stuff like that before, but this just seems so completely out on its own um and it has an ending which is uh you know a hell of a lot of something <laughs> you know and uh, yeah i i think it's it just at particularly at the time it just felt like an absolute knockout um yeah uh shall i go on to my next one yeah the tale by jennifer fox now this is not technically a movie because it was only released on tv Oh. Uh, it was on it was on HBO in America. Um, it might have had a theatrical le- release somewhere, um, mm. but uh, it's quite easy to find. Or at least it was when I last checked. Anyway, the tale directed by um, Jennifer Fox. It is a movie about, and actually, uh, just a content warning while I'm talking about this movie because it is about um, child abuse and rape. So skip forward a couple of minutes. I won't go into any detail, but. Just FYI. It is a movie um, based on the director's own experience of being a survivor of child abuse and how she reckons with that in her adult life and flashing back to when it happened to her as a child. Um, Like I say, it's based on the director's own experience, so it's biographical, sort of down to a decimal point. Um, uh, Laura Dern plays her, and then there's a, a young actress who's playing the younger version of her. The movie is about uh, the tale 
referred to in the title is about the tale she has told herself to make herself okay with what happened to her and how she's justified it in her head over the years as being something she was okay with and how that has kind of calcified with time but how that begins to unravel I think it would be a very good movie for people to watch, um, you know, uh, to learn about this stuff. And I've heard that it's used for people sort of treating people who have had these experiences because it is very honest. It's very explicit, but it's also just very, very um, considered and heartfelt and takes great pains to be accurate about an incredibly uh, difficult subject. It has one moment early on, which I think is just extraordinary. We're flashing back to when this girl was a 13-year-old. And when you see her, um, and you'll have to take with what I'm saying with a grain of salt, because it'll make me sound a bit weird. But when you see her, you think, oh, well, that's not so bad. She looks kind of, you know, she's she's on her way to womanhood. You know, she looks okay. And this is the version of herself that Laura Dern is remembering. Uh, and you're sort of seeing her interact with these people. And then what happens was is her mother says to her, sees a picture of her at that age and says, oh, no, that was you when you were 15. This is you when you were 13 and shows her a picture of a little girl, you know, very much a little girl. And the actress in the flashback changes into a little girl. Um, and you realise that, you know, that you've been kind of oh. tricked by the casting almost of her own memories which is just this perfect way of explaining how you know getting into the idea that this that the that she's told herself a different version of events to what actually happened a sort of moment of magic really of horrible horrible um magic so yeah it's a, it's a harrowing watch um and <laughs> yeah. the first thing the first thing that happens in it is a thing comes up on the screen saying there are scenes of you know um child abuse in this movie um, and tells you how they were shot with body doubles and stuff like that because um, it is uh, a lot. But I found it insanely powerful, and I felt like I learned so much about um, such a, such an awful thing um, that is seems so common in our world. Um, yeah. Well, I think I'll have to fortify myself before I watch that. I have to say, but uh, how about some light relief? Um, a film about uh, the 1981 IRA hunger strike. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, Steve McQueen, I think, is one of the most exciting filmmakers on the planet currently. He won a lot of plaudits for 12 Years a Slave, which, whilst it tells like a, a very important story, I think is actually kind of a slightly less uh, interesting f- film uh, in some ways than Hunger and also Shame, both of which uh, I put on this list. Hunger, like I said, about the uh, IRA hunger strikes in the 1980s in May's prison, um, led by the prisoner whose name became famous after that, Bobby Sands, here played by Michael Fassbender, uh, who's they're protesting against their treatment, uh, uh, specifically also their treatment uh, as non-political prisoners. They wish to be recognised as political prisoners. But actually the film is sort of less about the wider ambitions of the Republican cause. In fact, it does do some things to complicate that um, uh, and make it clear that that's not just an analoid cause for good and nobility, but it's more about sort of the personal lengths. Um, Someone uh, will go for a belief. Um, And there's this... This is typified uh, in the, the film's best scene and probably one of the best scenes in, in cinema uh, by this just utterly riveting 17-minute-long single-shot debate uh, between a priest played by Liam Cunningham uh, and Michael Fassbender as they sort of talk about the purpose of his sacrifice and the priest attempts to kind of um, talk him out of it. 
Uh, I talk, talk him out of starving himself to death, you know. Um, and it's it's a, it's an it's an amazing conversation to watch. It's absolutely absolutely riveting. But it was interesting um, in relation specifically to uh, your uh, watch of uh, Midnight Mass because. Uh, as I was watching Midnight Mass, I was like, "Oh, ho- holy shit! This, this, this—the conversation that the priest has in that one-on-one, a uh, very extended conversation with one of the, the the other kind of focal point characters in that TV series." Uh, although it's obviously talking about a much um, uh, <laughs> sort of m- more trivial, fantastic, if you like, sort of uh, situation. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, but I felt it sort of echoed this debate in a lot of ways. Um, it's a sort of you know. Uh, a meeting of of minds um, intent on persuading each other. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, and shame. I can't remember whether this this film came out before or after Hunger, but uh, it was after. The uh, uh, Fassbender sort of returns again, um, uh, and again, it's it's an, it's another film about the effects of need on the body and mind. Um, in as much as uh, he plays a sex addict in this. Um, and then his sister, uh, played by Carrie Mulligan, who crashes his flat, is just as destructive in a bunch of other ways. And the film is sort of like this fairly unhappy examination of the ways in which they are just grimly unable to seek uh, relationships that would sustain them or nourish them. And it's it's shot with this sort of bleak modern sterility that feels quite a lot like uh, like Michael Mann films. Both of the, both of these films are just perfectly put together like obviously not a single shot has gone wrong or has been there's no there's none of it feels improvisational (laughs) or catching up they are exquisitely made films i think steve mcqueen's films incredibly handsome and solid in the in a way i remember the first i ever saw of um steve mcqueen was when he won the um turner prize i think he won i think he won it for the um series of movies which was him recreating the buster keaton stunt where um the front the sort of facade of houses would fall down over him and he would um he would kind of uh the window would kind of land over him so he would be protected from anything crushing him and he did a series of those and i think that's what he won the turner prize for and i always think that's it was such an interesting sort of thematic for him to set that like our bodies are these kind of vulnerable things in space um but they're kind of all we have, you know, that the, the, the sense of solidity that we have of our own bodies is our only sense of solidity in a world that is constantly trying to kind of, you know, fuck us over in one sense or another. And I think that <laughs> carries into uh, their um, uh, 12 Years a Slave as well. Mm, yeah. I think he's uh, a really fascinating filmmaker who never does anything, you know, the easy way. He always takes an unusual choice. The Arbor, Cleo Barnard. Have you seen this movie, Marsh? I haven't, no. So this might be an even more brutal and sad and depressing movie than The Tale, I think. It is a documentary, a mix of documentary and fictional elements that tells the story of Andrea Dunbar, who is the playwright who wrote um, uh, Rita Sue and Bob Two and a number of other um, plays before dying at a young age. She's a, a working class woman from Bradford who grew up in pretty extreme poverty, who kind of became this sort of course celeb for her kind of amazing um, scripts uh, that she, plays she wrote that were put on, um, which have this kind of extraordinary, um, you know, view of a world that's not normally touched by theatre. And then in this movie, what uh, Cleo Barnard does is kind of tell her stories 
Um, and what she did was interview the major players in her life. Um, but then what she does is get um, actors to lip sync to the recordings of um, oh, wow. people um, talking about it, uh, as well as um, sort of recreations of some of Andrea Dunbar's uh, plays in the kind of in the sort of um, out in Bradford, like out on the estate where she grew up. Her life story is extraordinarily sad and brutal. Um, she lived far too short. Um, a life and was treated very badly but actually the movie is more interested in her two children um, who kind of went off in in very different directions but their their story have um, real bleakness and darkness to them too Um, yeah it's a movie you need to go into sober um, because there are some real horrors um, therein but it is also I think a really quite extraordinarily moving uh, movie about you know again an, another kind of movie about a world where you just kind of there's not that many voices from these spaces that gets through or there's precious little and and I think it feels like almost like a privilege watching that movie to to kind of hear from a world where you know no one really you know especially in this day and age no one really gives a fuck about working class people from Bradford you know so mm. yeah really good one wow that sounds fucking grim uh- <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I think the the sort of next two picks are slightly more uplifting. Uh, they're both by um, Pedro Moldovar, um, who who's a filmmaker I came to actually through the first of these two picks, uh, Volver, um, and I think that gave me a, a a sort of misaligned expectation of what his films are generally like because he is incredibly love in love with schlock and camp, and his films tend to be. Um, extremely histrionic <laughs> and bizarre and uh, and funny. Um, but Volver is actually uh, not like that. It feels kind of much more kind of meaty and sumptuous. It's just it's just this incredibly rich, heartwarming and, and very funny drama about um, a family of Spanish women uh, in which Penelope Cruz is forced to kill her husband uh, after he attempts <laughs> to rape her daughter. Um, which doesn't sound like it's going to be the setup for a, a heartwarming film, but it really is. Um, and this this horror uh, initiates a sequence of events which sort of uncovers further secrets from previous generations. Um, I was I I feel like I'd eaten a big meal when I came out of this film. <laughs> <laughs> Just incredibly satisfied in every single way. I felt quite similar uh, about Talk to Her as well, which is the the Pedro Almodovar film that you picked. Yeah, I mean. It's a tricky one, this movie. It's it's um it's a story of a I mean it's weird, it's one of those movies that starts off as a completely different movie before heading in a different direction. It's about a guy married to a, a woman who's a bullfighter <laughs> and the first half hour of the movie is about that and then and then she gets injured, um, and then the movie is about, you know, who he meets in the hospital that she is uh, sent to. Um it, I was I, <laughs> I was sort of I, after I put this on our list, I was thinking about it because Talk to Her is is kind of a movie, and I don't want to spoil it because I do think it is worth a watch. But it is a movie that has things to say about loneliness, and I think he said that the alternative title for the movie is loneliness. Uh, but the way that it kind of articulates and the way that the story goes is kind of outrageous and upsetting in in many ways. Um, Suffice to say that this is a movie about people imprinting on the bodies of comatose young women. 
emotionally, falling in love with them uh, and where that takes them. And I found with the movie that it was so beautiful, beautiful and troubling is what I would say about those, that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of embraces that. And that is why, you know, I can't, you can almost imagine condemning that movie. Um, for where it takes you, and and for the sort of some of the moral choices that the characters made, but the film embraces that trouble and that sense of um, unease with such a sort of sense of humanity to come alongside it. That for me, I found it extraordinarily moving when I when I watched it. Um, although I also found it found myself feeling very uneasy about it about it too. Um, you know, I think it might be a masterpiece, but it is also completely outrageous <laughs> in so many ways. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, that that is Pedro Moldova's sort of niche, isn't it? Is is outrageousness? I think. Yes. Gozu. <laughs> Have you seen Gozu by any chance, Marsh? No, I haven't. I mean, it's one of a million films by Takashi Miyake uh, since he seems to put out at least ten a year. Um, yeah, but I haven't so seen go- Gozu. So Gozu is basically his take on a um, David Lynch movie. So it is a movie about a guy who is, uh, I think the basic plot is about, you know, a young Yakuza taking an older, crazier Yakuza somewhere to be, I think maybe to be whacked, or maybe that turns up as a plot element later. It doesn't really matter because what basically happens in the movie is they arrive in a small, weird town somewhere in Japan and weird shit starts happening. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't make sense. It kind of characters transform from one to another. It's got some absolutely horrendous uh, Mieke style um, body horror with sort of gallons of breast milk and worse. Um, oh my God. And uh, a, a mo- a, an amazing scene where a guy is being French kissed by a cow. Um, it's so mad. Uh, it's an absolutely insane and wild riot, wild ride that I really, really recommend. It is bonkers, disgusting, hilarious, kind of powerful in its own way. It's got an, apt, an absolute hair razor of an ending, um, and yeah, it just feels like just from someplace else. It's written actually by if you ever see Kill Bill, um, the sequence in Kill Bill where they're in the house of a whatever, Lucy Liu's kind of domain. And she's got this little guy who's kind of following her around. They call him Charlie Brown and they're all taking the piss out of him. (laughs) It's written by that guy for some reason. Um, (laughs) The bald guy who's sort of following around and being bossed around by his wife in Kill Bill. It's written by him and he turns up in it as well as a guy selling custard. Um, Yeah, it's it's (laughs) mad. The DVD I've got of it, um, which I can actually see from here, uh, it just says the quote on the box is from a critic. Just says "brace yourself," which I think is an excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Gozu, um, completely insane. A really good fun. I can't recommend it enough. Actually, wow, uh, I, I, yeah, dream of getting that kind of box quote for anything I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, two movies? No, not two movies. Just one movie by Luca. G- G- oh, I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> Guadagnino? Guadagnino? I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Call Me By Your Name is the uh, <laughs> name of the film that we wanted to talk about next. Uh, it's uh, it's set in 1983. Uh, and it's about this precociously talented 17-year-old um, played by Timothy Chalamet, 
who's the son of this Italian archaeology professor who finds himself drawn to uh, an older graduate student played by Army Hammer, uh, who's staying at their idyllic villa uh, for the summer. And they sort of tentatively embark on this love affair. I, I kind of typically dislike coming of age dramas uh, generally, uh, but this one is sort of like so shorn of the usual sort of crude social anxieties and embarrassment that it sort of seemed to be part of that package normally. And it's instead a film about just emotional growth, self-realization, sort of transitory nature of this sort of summer love. Uh, it's it's really uh, a deeply beautiful film, incredibly moving, uh, with tremendous, tremendous performances. Have you seen it? Yes. Now, this is the one movie I would say I disagree with you on. I did oh. not like Call Me By Your Name. Um, I loved his movie um, one or two before then called I Am Love with Tilda Swinton, which is a really good um not entirely dissimilar because it's about a sort of you know family in Italy, uh, but I think is, is 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 a bit more to my taste. Call me by your name. Why didn't I like it? It was mostly, to be honest, the finals. Oh, I can't spoil it, but there's a scene at the end um, <laughs> uh, where there is a father son conversation between Timothy Chalamet and Michael Stahlberg. I never know how to pronounce that guy's name. Um, who I, that guy, he's going to come up in another film later on. I genuinely think he's one of the best actors in the world. Mm. But his face in that scene annoys me so much because he's being <laughs> so earnest and it just felt so silly that, that, that I walked out of that movie thinking, fuck that movie. Wow. <laughs> so that, that guy's face <laughs> ruined that movie. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't, I don't recall uh, his expression at that point or... <laughs> <laughs> what could have been so annoying about it? I'll take your word for it, though. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to discuss that in the context of um, yeah, the next film, which is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I mean, both it's you know in a, a very reductive way. Both of these films are about gay love affairs, uh, which have a you know a ticking, ticking time clock element to them. Mm. Uh, but Portrait of a Lady on Fire, yeah. Another in a period setting, but this one sort of feels a lot kind of moodier and less settled than the sort of idyllic summertime of Call Me By Your Name. Uh, it's about Marianne, a painter who's summoned to this isolated estate on the Brittany coast. Um, and she's there to secretly paint a portrait of a young aristocratic lady in, who's going to get married. Um, and so this, this portrait is an important part of her betrothal. But the lady in question does not want to be married. Um, and refuses to have her portrait painted. So the painter is there in sort of pretending to be a hired companion, but is secretly sort of taking sketches and, and creating this painting of her. But then this this deception is put under duress as a, you know, a, a relationship between the two women uh, develops. Um, I think both of these films just... Uh, the, the transitory nature uh, the, of, or the kind of almost impossible nature of the love that is uh, is blossoming is is just you know exquisitely beautiful uh, and tragic and painful at the same time. Gorgeous looking films as well. Yes, I would say that my favourite bit in Call Me by Your Name is the bit when they go on the day trip into town, and there's the girl standing by the car dancing to the psychedelic furs, and an army hammer goes and dances with her, and and uh, Timothy Chalamet sort of watches, um, which is clearly something that actually happened to I think the director, um, and it just the, for me that was the the best and most beautiful moment in the movie because it felt so true 
to that exactly what you're saying that kind of youthful transitory moment kind of feeling like this is the best anything's ever going to be and then it's all going to fade away mm. um and and yeah i think uh, i haven't seen a, a portrait of lady on fire but it is definitely on my list Amoros Peros by Alejandro Gonzalo Inerito. I never know how to pronounce his last name. Um, it's a running <laughs> theme here. Uh, Loves a bitch <laughs> is the English translation. Um, yeah, this is, um, I think this film came out in 2000, so it's quite um, close to. Mm. I was surprised month. to hear this was uh, this side of the millennium, actually, because I remember yes. it being like a big, uh, impactful film in my teenage years, but clearly that's a false memory. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Um, it's the it's a kind of you know it has a sort of Tarantino mm. style um, structure where it's sort of three or possibly four stories that all kind of collide quite literally in a car crash, um, all unified by the theme of dogs in Mexico City, uh, turn of the century Mexico City. Um, it, it, again, it's one of those movies which is just so packed with humanity and and a sense of the real world as this kind of big chaotic place where you know human moments are are few and far between and and so valuable when they're found um yeah i mean it one of the stories is about a kind of um pretty actress who's having an affair with a married man who then uh, loses her dog under the floorboards of her house her new flashy house and it is a kind of study in guilt and um and then there's there's kind of various other stories coming in there. There's one moment which anyone who's seen the the movie will know, which is the moment when the tramp guy gets back to his sort of house and what he finds there, which I think is up there with one of the most jaw dropping moments in any of the movies on this list. Um, uh, it, it's it's a movie about people and a movie about dogs <laughs> and uh, and and kind of how dogs become a, a sort of vessel for for people's own inadequacies um and i think it has a, a really amazing uh, script as well uh, yeah it's just really great yeah it's got a terrific sense of pace to it as well and uh, i introduced um gail garcia bernal to me who is uh, objectively one of the most beautiful people <laughs> i Ooh, think god he's like he's he is <laughs> absolutely um and particularly in that movie actually he almost seems mm. to sort of uh shine uh light emanating from him he's so perfect and he, but he's a piece of shit as well really <laughs> i think that's the thing he it's it's quite a clever bit of casting because he, he is so kind of uh angelic looking that i think had they cast anybody else his character would have uh landed in a much more unsympathetic way from the outset but you are with him for most of it because he is just so beautiful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fish Tank was my next film, which actually, as you were talking about uh, the uh, unloved working classes uh, uh, for the Arbor, made me think uh, of Fish Tank as well. Actually, although when I was um, looking uh, up Fish Tank again to remind myself of what even happened in it, uh, <laughs> it is so grim that I was like, what am I doing? Why don't I put something nicer on the list than this? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a really unrelentingly grim kitchen sink stuff with no real life affirming or redemptive qualities uh we follow uh this unruly teenager um mia who's uh played by katie jarvis so i'm now pleased to see uh, has uh, uh had an acting career after this she was like a uh, just a uh, completely unstudied off the street um, actor right, yeah. i believe at the time and then didn't appear in anything for for a decade or so but now is uh has been a regular on eastenders so she's she's um 
got back in the saddle in that respect. Um, but this, this teenager, Mia, uh, her life in this East London council estate is uh, pretty turbulent. She she has these beefs with her ex-best friend and, and entertains uh, sort of adolescent notions of being a, uh, a dancer, which if, you know, as you're watching it, you realize probably isn't going to be in her future. Uh, she commits these minor crimes uh, and essentially she finds herself drawn to her mother's charming middle-class boyfriend uh, played by uh, Michael Fassbender again uh, who reciprocates this attraction in a much more predatory fashion uh, and uh, made it very difficult for me to like <laughs> Michael yeah. Fassbender in, in films thereafter. Um, I don't know that the film sets out to say anything. Uh, it, itself, it is just this sort of uh, slice of bleak life. Yeah, I mean, I would. I, I, another movie occurred to me as you were talking then, which is um, the movie I, I would recommend it actually. Uh, again, it's kind of heavy going. Is um, Samantha Morton's single uh, directorial movie, which is The Unloved, which is mm. about based on her own experiences of growing up in care. Um, and is absolutely heartbreaking and very, very sad. But again, is a, as a piece of um, social realism and a kind of real sense of reality, uh, truth. Um, uh, I think it's of a piece with uh, Andrea um, hmm. Arnold's work as well. St. Maud. Have you seen St. Maud? No. Is this the only out-and-out genre thing we have on, on our list? Um. Yeah, I think so. There's a couple, probably a couple more horror. There's maybe one more horror movie from me a little bit further down. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, Saint Maud. Um. So this is um a, a recent movie. It came out a couple of years ago. Um. It is. I just want to shout out the director. Uh. Directed by Rose Glass, and starring someone called Morfid Clark. It is the story of a young woman who has been. Uh, at some point in the past, a medical student or a, or a nursing student who has been sort of struck off from that for reasons unknown and who goes to work for a, um old retired actress who's dying, played by Jennifer Ale. Um, and it is about her kind of... It is about her relationship with her and her own sense of herself as sort of holy or, or sacred and basically where that takes her. And I don't want to sort of say any more about the plot because it is a kind of real sort of um, road to hell, that movie, about where it goes. Um, it's just a really interesting movie, really well directed. The performances are fantastic. It's a young female director doing it and it feels like it comes from a, a different place. It's set in Wales, in the seaside. Um, you Again, with that feeling of being in a different world, but just just a very sad and true um story which is kind of a horror movie but is is very um it's very human focused i think um and yeah it's just it's just one of those movies that's just completely unique it's completely itself you've never seen anything like it you know and uh, yeah really really good i i really recommend that one actually St. Maud. my next film was uh, night watching uh, which seems to have largely flown on the radar um when, when I talk to people, uh, a film by Peter Greenway. It's m mostly about the painting of Rembrandt's uh, most <laughs> famous picture. Um, it's a, uh, like this ensemble uh, portrait called The Night Watch, which I think hangs in the Rijksmuseum uh, in Amsterdam. 
uh, and it was commissioned by the people who appear in the, the picture, who are this sort of influential group of militiamen. But the film posits that Rembrandt, in fact, sort of took this commission under some duress because he didn't like the people. And in fact, he suspected them of murder. Uh, and he uses symbology uh, that apparently would have been readily understood at the time, but uh, you know, is in- incomprehensible to modern audiences to subtly accuse those people in the picture of that murder. Um, and there was a there's an accompanying documentary that Greenway put out, which sort of set this out in more scholarly terms. I don't think the scholarly world has been convinced that this is the case. <laughs> and in fact, I think in a kind of extra clever way, it may in fact be Peter Greenaway's sort of like making an extra sort of artistic confabulation on top of the movie itself, which is sort of interesting to think about. Like he's created this separate reality, which he's then bolstered by a a documentary, which might be fallacious, but then it kind of supports the fiction of this other film. So, I mean, if that is his intention and he's not just a conspiracy theorist, then there there is a really kind of interesting and intricate artistic uh, attempt going on there in some way, Uh, even if it sort of ultimately sort of creates um, disinformation about about Rembrandt's uh, most famous work. But aside from all that, like the movie Beneath is also this just incredibly humane and like bawdy look at Rembrandt's life. Um, uh, Martin Freeman uh, plays Rembrandt and it's uh, just a a superb uh, performance from him. Uh, You get to see his penis, which is fun. And then, (laughs) uh, but but one one of the things I really like about it is that it's obviously made by somebody who really loves Rembrandt's paintings, not just because the the way that the the, um, the stage is set, and all of, a lot of Peter Greenaway's films take place in uh, what feels like an artificial space, kind of very very stagey in the way that they're put together. But this one is stagey, but it's also composed like Rembrandt's paintings. Uh, the the use of light the the composition feels like uh like like paintings uh, of that era and, and not only that but the kind of quality with which they appraise rembrandt's life is also very much like that same sort of rich but completely unembarrassed unembarrassed interest with which rembrandt himself depicted the you know the what would be thought of as squalid lives of other people but he did it with compassion um and showed them to be humans, uh, despite you know, despite living uh, lives of poverty, in comparison to the the people who normally pay for paintings. Um, I think it's quite a, a, a deeply empathic film, uh, and quite beautiful as well. well. It sounds fascinating. He's he's one of my complete blank spots. I don't think I've ever seen a Peter Greenway movie. So uh, yeah, I definitely need to remedy that one. Um. A Serious Man by the Coen Brothers. I'm glad that this is one of the ones we agreed on. Because um, <laughs> obviously there's a bunch of um, Coen Brothers movies uh, released in the last 20 years. And probably quite a few of them are, are more highly considered than um, A Serious Man. Um, but I think it's 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 their best movie, perhaps. Maybe their best mm. movie in, in the last couple of decades. Uh, the story of the kind of existential crisis a guy goes through... Um, uh, after his, uh, he finds out his wife is um, trying to divorce him. Uh, it's very weird. It's set in sort of Minneapolis in the 1960s amongst a sort of Jewish community, which is the one that the Cohen brothers kind of come from themselves. And it's kind of uh, it has a, a lot of fun with sort of some of the foi- foibles and idiosyncrasies of that world. Uh, 
for me, one of the reasons I love it is it has one of the great villains ever, Cy Abelman. Oh, yes. Um, who is just this incredible... I just think he's one of the truest villains you've ever seen. because he, <laughs> he rocks up at the house with a bottle of wine and tells the, tells the guy, tells Michael Stolberg that he's basically going to steal his wife from him and there's nothing he can do about it. And he keeps hugging him and embracing him. Um, and yeah, I just it just felt so true to me that that is how the villains in your life turn up, really. They don't turn up you know, um, in the shadows, they t- turn up at your door with a bottle of uh, Manischewitz wine. Um, yeah, so I, I just, I just love a serious man. It, it, it's, it's about existence and the absurdity of existence. I love that Richard Kind, his brother, the character he plays, is is like writing a kind of like geometry of space time or something in a in a book. He's kind of writing it. Um, and yeah, I just, it's a, it's a great uh, movie. I think with a with another spectacular ending. It's a very funny film, but I think it's also the Coen brothers' most sort of self, maybe self-satirizing to some extent. I think I, I talked to you about this in in chat before, but sort of one of the the problems I have with the Coen brothers is that they um, they're very liberal with their their use of fate as a device, um, and th- terrible circumstances befall their uh, their protagonists often, and. The films seem to be saying, "Wow, isn't this bad? How terrible it is!" But like, there's you you can't escape the the fact that it has been written to be bad <laughs> for these people. Like, the hand of the director is always is very evident uh, to me in in the way that um, fate falls out in these things. And I feel like it's a little bit perverse often for the Coen brothers to try and tug at your sympathies for people uh, who who they have themselves put in this punishing situation. There's just something a bit too kind of arch and wry about it. Uh, whereas in this film, which is just a relentless sequence of terribly shitty things happening to the main <laughs> character, which seem extraordinary, there just seems to be a, a, a level of humor and self-understanding. Uh, uh, I love the scene where he's talking to his student, the one who may or may not be blackmailing him, and he's talking to him about Schrodinger's cat and the student saying to him, because he's... he's, he's um, the student's not doing well enough in his classes and not, you know, handing in his papers properly. And the student's known like, and the thing is, I understand about the cat. I get the cat. I understand about the cat. And he's sort of saying, it's not about, the cat is just a, you know, a metaphor. It's about the maths. It's about the work you have to do behind that. Um, and I thought that that was quite a good little key to unlock that movie. Like this kind of oh, idea yeah. that you can give yourself a little cute model, but unless you understand the numbers behind it, you're just talking bollocks about a cat, you know? <laughs> Uh, the next two films I wanted to pick up were both David Fincher films. Uh, obviously, one of the kind of the the big names of the last two decades. Um, the two films that I wanted to pick by him were The Social Network and Zodiac, which are two incredibly different sort of films. The Social Network is, uh, you know, this incredibly pithily, zippily scripted uh, film uh, written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, which tells the story of Facebook's founding and the subsequent falling out of its founders. And I think, I guess it must be the first and possibly, is it the only now major dramatic film to examine like an institution of that scale, which has dominated and ruined our society? <laughs> I don't, I don't think, I mean, it feel, I, I, I doubt that at the time uh, that Fincher put it together, he probably realized quite the importance. I mean, Facebook was a big deal, obviously, but like, I doubt he realized quite the importance of the subject matter at the time. Um and as a result of that, it allows Fincher to tell a kind of more personal story about these flawed 
incredibly vain young men in a scrabble for dominance and uh you know prominence in the this new frontier of silicon valley but i think it lets them off the hook a little bit about for what is now apparent as a crime against humanity (laughs) um but like i it's going to be a film that's going to be looked back on in in decades i think as uh you know facebook's influence in the world continues to um destroy it one of the uh if you ever listen to the podcast uh behind the bastards which is a very good um Mm. sort of uh uh, take on on awful people uh, with a very talented journalist who presents it, Robert Evans, and he talked about how the thing is with those movies is that Mark Zuckerberg has used the myth um, created of him in the social network to kind of disguise the fact that he's actually much worse than that. <laughs> he's oh, yeah. a much worse person and always was and has <laughs> always been a selfish, um, you know, guy who just basically has worked out the algorithm to make as much money as possible and give himself as much power as possible, uh, really at the expense of anything else, you know. I mean, the movie touches on that, but I think the I think Mark Zuckerberg has enjoyed a level of sort of um, immunity because of it, because there's a, there's a sort of fictional version that people can look at. Absolutely. I mean, Jesse Eisenberg is incredibly charismatic, even as he's being a prick in this film. But he's, you know, he's smart, he's witty, and he's incredibly uh, damaged and needy. But, you know, the film does... uh, I mean, there's even a line in it which says, you're not such a bad guy, Mark. You just, you know, I can't remember what excuse they give him, but, you know, but it's clearly not the out-and-out sociopathy that actually typifies much of Silicon Valley. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Um, but but Zodiac, I mean, uh, I in in a way, these films didn't really need to be linked together, did they? Because <laughs> they share almost nothing between them. I think, apart from the director, obsession. Oh, okay, yeah, fair, okay, <laughs> we'll work with that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Zodiac is uh, is obsessional. I think you know Fincher himself has some level of obsession uh, with serial killers. That is a reoccurring theme in his own work, from Seven to. Um, the TV series he did, uh, Mind, Mind Hunter. Hunter. <laughs> but this is like just a, a forensic, methodical, dramatic retelling of the search for the Zodiac Killer across many decades um, and the things that the, the search does to the lives of those people involved. I think it's just, um, I I really admire films that, uh, that take a, essentially a documentary subject and then unpack it in a way uh, which is both dramatically exhilarating and exhaustive. I think that's a difficult thing to do, and this is one of those films that does that brilliantly. Uh, it's a great exploration of the investigation, um, which just has so many dozens of bizarre coincidences and blind eyes and twists in it that if you wrote it as fiction, you'd just be like, oh, don't be, that's fucking ridiculous. But it actually happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also on top of that, the, the film is obviously in dialogue with and references and I think to some sort of degree kind of repudiates the sort of seedy schlock of serial killer films as a, as a broader genre uh, and even sort of replies to Finch's own um, effort in, in Seven um, with kind of the appropriate sobriety now for dealing with something which is actually, you know, irredeemably tragic for, for the victims. Yes. I, it's a nicely asymmetrical movie as well, like... It's nicely, you know, it's sort of weird and bulbous and weird diversions. That's always nice to see. <laughs> you know, they try mm. and kind of unavoidable if you're going to actually try and take on the totality of something rather than the easiest narrative route through. 
Yeah. Um, I like I really like um, Gyllenhaal in it as well, which uh, I don't often <laughs> in films. Yeah. I, I, I quite like Gyllenhaal. Is, it, is Danny Jr. in it as well? Is that, I got that yeah. right? Yeah, 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 he's yeah. great. Some really interesting, well. like, kind of performances because he's kind of mostly disappeared into, uh, you know, the Iron Suit now, hasn't he? But like, mm. you always forget that he was capable of like pretty extraordinary stuff that wasn't being Tony Stark. Anyway. Well, he is kind of Tony Stark in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. He's isn't still he? a, a wisecracking, like, smart the wisecracking super cop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> uh, Whiplash um, oh, by yeah. Damien Chazelle. Uh, so I've only seen this movie once. I will not be watching this movie again because the experience <laughs> I had watching it was so good that I don't want to ever go back to it and, and, and potentially uh, spoil that. Um, I saw it uh, at the cinema uh, and it felt like being in being an ingredient in and also the uh, object of a magic spell, basically. It's a movie that builds itself around a character's drive towards perfection um, and how he's kind of tempted in and out of this by a devil figure. But what it really feels felt like for me, it was a movie that delivers you into a final scene, kind of explodes your brain with euphoria um, and then kind of kicks you up the backside to get you out of the cinema. I was so excited and appalled by it and particularly by that final scene. Mm. Um, I remember when the the final, you know, the the film ends on a on a drum hit, and I remember I literally shouted "Blimey!" at the screen, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and everyone looked at me and laughed, but I had been completely taken to pieces by it, um, and kind of yeah, just just the way it was able to induce euphoria in me in that final sequence was really unreal and strange. I rang up my sister on the way out of the cinema, being like, "I just saw a really amazing movie." It really, <laughs> and she just her like on the end of the phone, like, "No idea what I'm talking about." Just like, "Okay, you saw you saw a good movie, did you?" Like, "Oh, you know, we're all over the shop." Um, <laughs> yeah, but that was just that was just so fantastic. I haven't liked anything yeah. he's done since. <laughs> oh, really? I haven't. I don't think I've seen anything else by him. But that is a searing film. I think what's what I like about it is is how, um, how how much it annoyed people. <laughs> yeah. Who who came out thinking that it needed to be didactic? Because I mean, there's a sense in which this film could be misinterpreted as promoting uh, suffering as the means to achieve good art, um, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, but I don't think the film is saying that that's how things have to have to happen. This is just the way that things happened in this circumstance, and that this is this is a complicated relationship. And you know, um, it, it you know there's uh, terrible uh, abuses that happen between teacher and student in this film. But uh, it, and it's not necessarily good that that uh, achieves an enhancement of talent in the student that you know it's 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 i don't think it's coming up with any answers it's saying this is a difficult situation yeah it kind of i mean it, in a certain light is a kind of fascistic movie but not, but not necessarily <laughs> yeah. one that's kind of condoning that it's just you know it's it, it kind of gives you this this case study in it i guess rather than like saying this is mm. this is great you know because you know you're watching that movie and you're having a great time in that ending sequence but the film doesn't let you get away with it you know it's not like the mm. film goes Wow! If we all just applied ourselves really hard, we'd all be, we'd all be free. You know, it's like you make a deal with the devil and you suffer, and it's not always great. You know, it's yeah. just kind of like you might have a great moment, but it's transitory. Right. Well, I and mean, what happens after the close of that film? I mean, it, it, lots of things are still fucked up, right? I mean, yeah. it's not. Yeah, he's, like, well, he's divested himself of his entire life, so it's like, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, quick, uh, talking of whiplashes, the next film is uh, Paddington. <laughs> uh, which is, also a fascist uh, movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an unbelievably witty and joyous film uh, that, about a talking bear from deepest Peru <laughs> who travels to London and he gets adopted by this family and he's just exceedingly nice to everyone, even when you know Nicole Kidman's trying to fucking taxidermy him. Uh, it's just incredibly warm-hearted, very funny, and I think it just didn't need to be. Uh, I think it could have been easily a much, much worse film, um, but they put out the best version that it could possibly be. And people say that they like Paddington 2 better. Um, I didn't particularly, but even if that was the case, I think that Paddington just uh, is such a, you know, in a, in a, in a, it's, it's absurd for me to call it brave. I'm going to call it brave. It's a brave bit of filmmaking because it could have been a, just a, you know, a cheap, uh, cheap, uh, low-hanging fruit yeah. kids film, and it actually uh, swung for the bleachers. What a what a fucking mix of terrible metaphors that is! But you know, it's good. It's all good. My next movie, from a, a, a bear found at Paddington Station to the catastrophic stocking of the Lake Victoria in Africa with a certain kind of perch, Diamond uh, Darwin Diamond Darwin's Nightmare by directed by Hubert Soper. I'd really recommend this movie. It's great. Um, it is about um, this the- is definitely the film of yours which I'm most excited to see. I have to say because I love logistical uh, fish based uh, catastrophes. <laughs> do um yeah so this is a movie a documentary about um lake victoria in africa it was stopped as a sort of bit of um engineering um with a certain kind of fish um which it was hoped would um re-energize the local economy um which it kind of did it did briefly but with terrible terrible side effects and results um it's a it's a really interesting documentary because it takes a very hands-off approach um, to the kind of filmmaking aspect. It's mostly composed of long shots and long interviews and the camera really sort of sit, sits back and watches um, and takes in these characters who have kind of come to this basically hellhole uh, created by the West. It's another movie, you know, very much about the kind of uh, disparity between, um, you know, the developing world and, 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 and uh, the first world. Um, very, very... Um, sad and uh, very, very disturbing, but also kind of fascinating, the characters that have descended on this place. Um, You get to know them with a real human touch. I mean, a lot of it is about the sex workers who have been drawn to the area by the influx in money, but also the weirdo mercenaries who've come over from Britain to be weird and menacing. It's a whole, like, strange cast of characters. Um, Yeah, really fascinating, um, uh, unique movie he made a, another movie a few years later which is much more it's funny because when you see him in the other movie he made he's this incredibly charismatic frenchman who is fantastic on camera <laughs> um but in uh, darwin's nightmare you don't see a you don't see a hide or hair of him so it, i thought that was quite interesting but both his both his movies i can't remember what the other one's called are really worth a watch because they are an investigation into you know something going very badly wrong um hmm. that is entirely man-made yeah unavoidable Wow, that sounds brilliant. Weirdly, it has a bit of sort of uh, mirroring of the, the film I wanted to talk about next, but its position in this list is just happenstance. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Bitter Lake, uh, another documentary, this one by Adam Curtis. Um, uh, Adam Curtis has this sort of unique ability to pull together disparate strands from history and culture 
and weave them into a single coherent thread. I think sometimes the coherency of that thread is perhaps illusory and just down to the skill of Adam Curtis as a filmmaker, but he's nevertheless very convincing uh, whilst you're watching the films. And here he's looking at the sort of historical context uh, and the reasons for and the fallout of the Afghan war. Um, but at the same time, he's doing like, just so, so much more uh, in the margins um, with parts of this film just talking about us as humans, uh, the intermixture of cultures, uh, uh, interaction of our politics and power and media. And he does this by mining the, the BBC archives for just never before seen B-roll, essentially, from a billion different news reports. And he conjures and blends these images of incredibly powerful metaphoric resonance from this sort of offcuts. Um, and uh, Bitter Lake is, is, is sort of revelatory, I think, in, in the ways that it talks about the larger kind of historic themes. But also it's moment to moment just uh, full of beautiful juxtapositions and images. I think one of the uh, there's just a interesting sequence of images where uh, it's this protracted shot of, I, I assume, uh, Afghani men um, doing uh, some sort of dance, which to Western eyes might might read as sort of effeminate. It's lots of pirouetting involved, um, and then it cuts to. Uh, uh, video footage of a bunch of American GIs getting manicures. And it's just, there's, it's full of these, I mean, you, you can't help but think immediately, you know, whatever you thought of the dancing Afghan men, the next sequence of <laughs> images just uh, completely undermine, you know, or just expose that that your, your own view of masculinity is obviously completely constructed by your culture. There's another, there's just another brilliant shot of, I think, I think, in fact, in part of that sequence, then it, it kind of, after it's gone through the GIs having their fingernails painted, it cuts to this uh, um, little statuette of a dancing hula lady, just one of these kind of wind-up toys. And, like, it's just in the, in the center of the camera, this little wind-up toy doing this little hula dance and all these kind of Afghan kids looking at it in sort of, like, mesmerization. Uh and again, you know, what, what does that say about the construction of femininity, of sexuality and dancing and all these other things? And then just right at the end, this little hand reaches out from the side of the screen, snatches it, and then it cuts and goes, goes on with the documentary. <laughs> but it's just full of those beautiful little moments, which are, I think, incredibly telling. I find it a lot more convincing um, than, more, than a lot of his recent work. Like, I thought The Power of Nightmares, which probably is a masterpiece mm. um, back in the day, was really good. But then his subsequent movies and actually the stuff he's done since Bitter Lake, I think veers pretty dangerously into conspiracy theory and, like you say, just, like, clever filmmaking to sort of make a point. I think Bitter Lake is really good because it embraces space and ambiguity a bit more. Um, you know, it's three hours long, and a lot of that is him using long shots, as you say, of like archive footage and stuff like mm. that. And I think for me, that solves a lot of that. This is the story of a man who thought he could change the world with an idea, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Gets a bit tiresome <laughs> after a while, but this was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm less interested in the, those parts as I am in this. Just the shots of like uh, an interview with a higher up in the, in the British Army being distracted by a fly buzzing around the room. Right, yeah. <laughs> Or, or something. Um, or the, wasn't there a bunch of like American soldiers in a laundry, like kind of getting into? <laughs> to remember a scene, scene sequence like that as well. How about Silence then, which was your next pick, the only Martin Scorsese film on this list? 
Yes. So this is, again, like this film suffers. I'm going to be brief so we can go a bit faster. But like this film suffers a bit from having Andrew Garfield in it in a part that I think was originally written for Willem Dafoe. Um, and that basically means that he doesn't quite have the muscle to get this movie over the hill in the way that Willem Dafoe did. It's a movie about Portuguese missionaries in Japan in the, I think, 18th century, 19th century? I think it's, well, it might be 18th century. Um, uh, sometime in the past, Portuguese missionaries in Japan um, looking for their old uh, like teacher, who's played by Liam Neeson, and it's Adam Driver and... Andrew Garfield, um, but it is actually a film which is about you know the silence of the title refers to the silence of um, from God God to man uh, over the course of two thousand years, and it is a film that is about the terror of living in a godless universe and the terror of feeling like your faith is completely unacknowledged and unobserved. Um, and again, it's another very long movie. It feels very personal to Martin Scorsese. Um, because he's a sort of lifelong Catholic. Um, I myself am not a Catholic, I'm not a believer, but I found the themes in the movie intensely moving and resonant, because it is a movie about trying to find meaning and trying to preserve something of yourself um, in, a, in a kind of impossible um, situation. Um, and it just it's just a really interesting movie in how it engages with the problem of of evangelism like what what different religions mean to different cultures um and how that can end in sort of you know terrible violence so it has a kind of colonial side to it as well um so yeah i think it's i think it's a little bit underrated um uh, i think people found it a bit ponderous when it came out but i actually thought it was one of the, the best movies released that year mm. um yeah really 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 good and andrew garford like i say a little bit underpowered i think he's coming to his own a bit more now, but he's playing a big old like part in that movie, and Adam Driver's playing the kind of secondary part. And in retrospect, it probably should have been uh, mm. the other way around. But yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend it. It's really good. It's one of the few Martin Scorsese films, at least you know, released during my life that I haven't seen. So I, I really do want to, especially since it's got Adam Driver in it, and uh, that man has never been anything other than extremely watchable. <laughs> yeah. Um, not in it enough is what you'll think. <laughs> <laughs> My next film is uh, just, a, I, I felt like I, I wanted to put this on the list because it is one of the kind of uh, most artfully constructed crowd-pleasing films. There's nothing especially deep about it, but it is uh, just a, 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 you know, a brilliant, um, ex- exhilarating piece of filmmaking. Master and Commander, colon, the far side of the world. Um it's based on an amalgamation of the brilliant naval novels by Patrick O'Brien. Um, this one, f- this film follows the uh, HMS Surprise uh, in the Age of Sail and its bluff and faintly sort of ridiculous but valiant captain, Jack Aubrey, played by Russell Crowe. Um, and he and his ship are pursuing uh, a formidable French frigate. Uh, called Asheron, which has been preying on the British whaling fleet. And what follows is just this sort of nautical cat and mouse, where the, the roles of cat and mouse keep on interchanging. Um, and at the centre of it, there's this, uh, it sort of preserves at least the kind of notional idea of this uh, friendship between 
Aubrey, the captain, and his uh, eccentric and particular surgeon, uh, Stephen Maturin, who is also uh, a natural philosopher and interested in um, Darwin's theories of evolution and, and examining the islands nearby for, for various creatures. Um, I, I love the books. I think I really want to do a lock-in on this film if, uh, if I can convince anybody to join me, um, uh, because I think it's just a, a formidable piece of filmmaking um it's so good and it's, <laughs> and it's such a tragedy that he didn't make like nine of these movies because they yeah. just it's so easily they could have done and i think i think all the all the people involved were very much up for doing that and it kind of uh it kind of got overshadowed by um lord of the rings type stuff i think at the time and kind of mm. wasn't anything like uh i think maybe they might have released it <laughs> the same day as lord of the rings or something like really? that uh, maybe I'm, I mean that can't possibly be true. I know at the award season it was the year that um, Return of the King, the worst Lord of the Rings movie, um, uh, well up to that date, um, uh, won everything, and I think uh, it was sort, sort of robbed there. But I also love this film; it's completely unique. Really, there's there's never been a movie that's paid so much attention to the particulars of the era and the period and the the combat is really exciting. The characters are a great laugh. The swashbuckling levels are through the roof. Um, yeah, it's just great. And it's also, um, you know, it's directed by Peter Weir, who is someone who's mm. just made a series of absolutely um, fascinating movies. Um, you know, his, his, um, his run, uh, you know, from sort of Picnic at Hanging Rock, Mm. Uh, the year of living dangerously. Witness the Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, Green Card, Fearless, The Truman Show, A Master and Commander. I mean, I just think that's one of the best filmographies anyone's ever had. I just, yeah. So I would definitely be up for uh, locking in on that at some oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, my next two are, are both Cronenberg movies, but by different Cronenbergs. So it's uh, uh, Spider, directed by David Cronenberg. Um, this is one that um, it's about a man who's kind of returning to um, life, going back to a halfway house after spending a long time in an institution. He's played by Ray Fiennes. And then it is also flashing back to his childhood where his parents are played by um, Gabriel Byrne and uh, Miranda Richardson playing his mother. Um, and he basically tells the story through these flashbacks of the origin of this guy. Um, and the terrible thing that happened um, in his house. I think mainly it's a very interesting like psychological thriller. Uh, you wouldn't call it particularly thrilling, but it is kind of a, a, a kind of, it does unfold um, in a series of sort of revelations. I think m- the main reason I'm including it here is Miranda Richardson's performance is incredible. Without spoiling too much, she plays several different characters in the movie. Um, in a way that's kind of invisible. The, the movie, in in a similar way to a lot of Cronenberg movies, is about how identity can be blurred, um, in this case, in the kind of twisted mind of a, of a disturbed individual. And Miranda Richardson does an incredible job of playing different projections of someone else's psyche, essentially. Um, yeah, it's a really um, disturbing um, uh, movie, I think. Uh, although a, li- a little bit more hopeful than some of the others we've mentioned here today. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't recall a lot about it. I remember liking it when it came out. I saw, but it sort of blurs into uh, other films in my memory because there's a sort of like spate of a couple of years um, where there was sort of uh, a borderline between 
uh, British social realism and horror. Um, there was a film called Young Adam, uh, which uh, had Tilda Swinson and um, Ewan McGregor in it, which uh, which I find difficult to separate in my imagery of it in my memory from from Spider, and then yeah, then even canals. into things like um, <laughs> canal, yeah. grotty canal <laughs> movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are like things like Dead Man's Shoes, Dead, Dead Man's Shoes by Shane Meadows as well, all seem to be of this the kind of like mini oeuvre that occurred in the early two thousands. Yeah, it was a weird time for that sort of stuff. It kind of, it's, there is a, 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 particularly with a sort of um, uh, fixation on masculinity as well, and, and sort of maleness. It did seem mm. like particularly, you know, that's obviously been where Shane Meadows kind of played as well, and so it's, it's kind of interesting vibe that. Um, David Cronenberg is a movie maker who sometimes I absolutely adore more often than not. He really annoys me. Mm, <laughs> like yes. That movie Maps to the Stars that came out a couple of years ago, I can't remember feeling as like revolted by a movie as I was by that. <laughs> I found it so tedious and annoying and revolting and, and self-satisfied. Um, Possessor, Brandon Cronenberg, who is David Cronenberg's son. This movie came out a couple of years ago. Um, you can watch a like unrated, X-rated cut or whatever it is. That's the one to watch if you want to track this one down. It is a body swap movie starring Andrea Riseborough and uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh, um, very much in the kind of um, his dad's uh, genre. He's kind of really embracing his, his, his dad's kind of major hits for this movie. Um, it basically takes place in a world where Andrea Riseborough can invade other people's bodies in order to sort of steal secrets or kill people. Um, and it basically takes the body swap trope and makes it about privacy in the modern age, which is a real um, genius stroke. It's deeply unsettling, really violent, really, really horrible. Really like one of those movies you want to take, like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, one of those movies you want to take like a bath in vim afterwards you know it's just so gross <laughs> um but andrea riceborough has never been better um and the idea that it has at its core of like what would it be like if two people shared the same body and the answer being really really awful <laughs> um really really <laughs> awful um is is really good it's kind of good fun as well in a kind of appalling way so yeah it's a, it's a good one yeah, to hear um, uh, Brandon Cronenberg talk about it, though, uh, this is completely independent of anything his father has ever done, and he's uh, a filmmaker striking out on his own, <laughs> uh, which is uh, which is a bold, uh, bold statement to make. <laughs> I just think, you know, like when uh, Stephen King sung Joe Hill, he just it's clearly at some point he just went, "Fuck it, I'm just going to write variations on it. Who cares? You know, I'm going to have a great time doing it." No, it's I think it's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, Indeed, says the man who. Uh, basically, like, got his way into his own career by trading off his own dad's credit. Um, Zoo uh, <laughs> is a documentary about bestiality. Uh, do you remember the guy oh, who? God. Was, do you remember the guy who was fucked to death by a horse? Remember that guy? It is a documentary <laughs> about that guy, um, uh, and it is an extraordinary movie um, about a um, place where you could go in the wilds of America and basically have sex with animals but the movie is extraordinary really because it is in no way gaudy or exploitative or you know kind of it's an incredibly sober incredibly serious examination of this kind of fundamental line between man and beast and what a kind of atrocious violation it is when people step across that line like these men were doing you know why what drew them to do that 
you know, what kind of people were they? What's the guy like who owns this farm? You know, where's he come from? Stuff like that. So it is a a dark and disturbed movie again, but it is fascinating um, on a very, very weird and um, disturbed uh, world. It's not, um, it's not a, it's not a film that's full of upsetting imagery, I would say, but it is a movie that is full of uh, upsetting themes. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Thank you. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I've really got to cheer up with these, don't I? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not going to help with the next film, which is actually quite re- quite relevant. Um, Grizzly Man, which is a, a documentary by Werner Herzog, um, and it documents the life and death of Timothy Treadwell, who befriended and lived with grizzly bears. He didn't try and fuck any of them, as far as we know. <laughs> but um, uh, ultimately, uh, and very sadly, he's, he gets, almost inevitably, he gets uh, killed and eaten uh, by them, along with his girlfriend. Um, and Herzog is just, you know... So I think this might have been my first encounter with Herzog, but he's so typically deadpan. I'm not sure if he is a nihilist, but there is certain nihilism to the way he deconstructs the sort of romantic fantasies of anthropomorphism that led this man to just project his human understanding of relationships onto wild animals. Uh, and uh, but but at the same time, like as 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 quickly as sort of like Herzog discards that sort of that cross-species empathy, if you like, uh, as a form of delusion or vanity, he, he sort of also shows incredible compassion towards um, the deluded, to, towards Treadwell, and particularly to his girlfriend, um, Amy Hugengard, who, who obviously didn't uh, didn't need to die. Um, and the other film of his that I would put uh, in this top 50 is Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is our only 3D film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and I don't, th- I don't, not sure it's a particularly amazing documentary, but it is remarkable in the way that it uses three D cameras to cast new light, literally, uh, onto the thirty two thousand year old hand paintings found in this cave network in in France, and it uses the facility of three D um, to demonstrate like how these paintings are sort of prehistoric animations because they use the not just the shape of the cave wall, but also the way that the flickering illumination of firelight would cast upon it to suggest movement. And that's something that only this film could have done with the technology that he had at his disposal. Um, Inevitably, because it's a Herzog film, he just gets distracted from that, though, and ends (laughs) up interviewing a weirdo who can believe, you know, who believes he can locate caves by smell. Uh, (laughs) It's just, you know, very tangential, but also funny. I did I just I mean, people aren't totally familiar with <laughs> Werner Herzog. I saw um, uh, a quote of uh, from him from one of his earlier films the other day from uh, Burden of Dreams, uh, in which he says, "The jungle is full of obscenity. Nature here is vile and base. There is a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that's all around us. The trees here are in misery, and the birds are in misery. I don't think they sing." They just screech in pain, <laughs> which is just ah uh, delectable. Very good. Yeah, you do a mean you do a mean Herzog there. Oh, thanks, man. Um, I would also add uh, Encounters at the End of the World, which is another documentary from around the same era, which is him going to Antarctica and meeting all the weirdos who live there. Oh yeah, um, that's a very good one too. Um, Next up is our only Japanese manga film, uh, anime film, um, Your Name by Makoto uh, Shinkai. 
Uh, yeah, this completely knocked my socks off when I saw it a couple of years ago. Um, it is a it was a absolute smash hit over in Japan and elsewhere, I think, um, but completely took me off guard. Um, it is a movie about the relationship. It's another body swap movie, but much more um, romantic, really, about a, a young girl who lives in the countryside and a boy who lives in the city, and they have a sort of body swap um, thing going on. Um, aside from the fact that the movie spends an immense amount of time showing how he enjoys groping his breasts when he is in the teenage girl's body, which I was just so done with by the first time <laughs> it happens in the movie, and it keeps happening. Aside from that, it is <laughs> an extraordinarily beautiful movie. I don't think I've ever seen a movie with um, you know with artistry on the scale uh, of your name. Uh, the, the detailing in the world, in the cities and in the countryside, everything in between is just absolutely unparalleled as far as I can tell. Um, every single frame, every single shot is just being obsessed over and perfected. And then it has a really, you know, aside from the breast groping, it has this really beautiful love story at the heart of it, um, which goes in like kind of very unusual directions you know it's it's kind of i mean it's kind of not that unusual if you've ever played a japanese rpg actually it has that kind of sort of mystical childhood type stuff which is kind of a little bit tropey to my eyes but again it's you know it's, it's a movie that has a kind of um gentle japanese like um singer songwriter folk music um on the soundtrack which just works for it it just works really well it's um huh. yeah a completely um amazing movie that is uh I, you know, I've never seen anything quite like it. Wow, big blind spot for me. Uh, so, I'll, oh yeah, it's, yeah, I think you'd like that one. It's 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 very good. Yeah, it's so like it's a good movie to watch with a partner as well because it's a good kind of you know, it's got a nice um, it's romantic. You know, it's a romantic movie, I guess. Mm. <laughs> not not convinced with the the, the breast groping stuff, but I'll uh, I'll. Uh, oh man, <laughs> it's such it's such a fuck at that. It's so stupid. It's like the one really really sour note in the whole thing. Your next film is Mean Girls. Oh, Mean Girls. Yeah. Oh, I love Mean Girls so much. This was a late edition for me, but I realised I couldn't um, uh, not include it. Um, not that I intend to talk about this stuff a lot, but like when we came up with Skins, I think we were basically just trying to remake Mean Girls because Mean Girls <laughs> is awesome. Like the way that they like the way that the teenagers are, pre- are presented in it with a sort of mixture of a, a, of a reverence and. Uh, Heart, you know, and and the way that kind of everyone is kind of ridiculous. It's a movie about, you know, I mean, everyone knows this movie. It's a movie about a, a new girl in school who's who's come from Africa, <laughs> um, and and kind of uh, takes up with uh, the Mean Girls of the title, and kind of it's about you know how she navigates school and in and out of this Queen Bee group, and it's written by Tina Fey. Um, yeah, just endlessly quotable, endlessly funny. Um, film I could just watch again and again and again and I have done um, yeah I, I don't know what else to say about it really it's just a pure joy <laughs> yeah I, 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 my memories of it are a bit hazy because it seems to blur into clueless as well for me which is a stupid <laughs> thing for it to, but you know it, it happens it, I think the mixture of I think it's, it's a really nice mixture in that it's a nice like it's nice like teenage um, you know sort of drama but it has a real like actual wit and sense of humor to it obviously brought by tina fey um uh which really marks it out as unusual because i think you know whenever teen drama tries to be too knowing it can come off as very arch and strange 
or if it tries to be like go the other way and, and treat them with too much reverence then you end up with sort of you know 10 things i hate about youism so it's like hmm. you kind of you want to be somewhere between dawson's creek and buffy and it's like it's a very <laughs> tight line to walk and i think mean girls does a does, does just the best job of it because it is laugh out loud um funny as well i want to talk about another documentary um this one tabloid by uh the documentary maker errol morris who's really interesting because he he uses this technique which is seems particular to Morris where he interviews people via a series of mirrors such that he can talk to them face to face and they can see him but while they're doing so they are actually looking directly into a camera and the, the effect is really remarkable especially because he often interviews psychopaths <laughs> or, or compulsive liars and it's fascinating to stare criminals. into that yeah, well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really interesting to stare into like uh, Robert M- McNamara's eyes, for example, unblinking as he you know dissembles or deludes himself, um, uh, as much as he's attempting to delude the person he's talking to. And he's used this technique on uh, not just Robert McNamara, but other famous pieces of shit like Donald Rumsfeld. Um, and I think those interviews. Um, are uh, just of global importance in understanding US politics and foreign policy and the kinds of people who get to be put in charge of those things. But neither of those documentaries involve bondage, kidnapping, Mormons, or animal cloning, uh, which, and tabloid has the full fucking sweep. Um, it focuses on the life of uh, maniac uh, Joyce McKinney, uh, who's uh, a woman who, uh, let's say, goes to some lengths to get her a man. Um, and it's the story then plays out and becomes this tabloid feeding frenzy in the 1970s of Britain. Um, but it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it goes some places, but really what's so mesmerizing about it is, um, talking to somebody who is either a liar or a fantasist and just, uh, somehow doing so directly manages to pierce something, uh, about them, uh, and, uh, and expose them. In a, in, a, in a way which I don't find a lot of other documentary makers manage to get through that sort of defense of people who are completely self-deluded. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really good, it's really fun. Because <laughs> it just, it's it's one of those stories that's kind of in that sort of stranger than fiction mold and it keeps twisting and turning and, and heading off in crazy directions. And it kind of, it's one of those things where he he rejoices in the fact that the story doesn't really have an ending. It doesn't really have a conclusion. Yeah. It just meanders on in the way that life does into kind of more and more weirdness and becoming less and less kind of uh, you know more and more opaque, opaque as it goes. And I think he's he's really good at that. Um, he's really good at making documentaries that don't have an ending. Uh, my favorite movie of him is the one called Mister Death, which is about mm. um, a real weirdo who was a guy who was kind of brought in by prisons to help design electric chairs for them and, and, and other methods of um, lethal injection and somehow ends up becoming a Holocaust denier uh, because he's brought in to um, check um, during a libel case against a, an actual Holocaust denier to check the gas chambers for chemical traces and stuff like that and ends up... And, and it's a real like banality of evil type movie, um, absolutely scintillating and very disturbing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a good one, Mr. Death. Uh so my last couple here, uh, Best in Show by Christopher Guest. Um, just one of the funniest movies ever made. Mm-hmm. So packed with hilarious characters. It's about the various people who are turning up to a dog show. Um, and, uh, you know, 
and it's about yeah the lead up lead up to and then the uh, the uh, uh, the new one of this uh, dog show that happens um, of these ridiculous animals um, made in his signature style, which involves you know writing a writing a kind of uh, scene guide uh, along with Eugene Levy and then letting the actors improvise their way through those scenes. Um, just a kind of amazing cast of just the kind of best comic talent in America at the time. Um, Michael McKean, I think, in particular, is amazing, but you could single out about just about 20 other people mm. uh, in that movie for doing amazing turns. Um, Fred Willard, as the uh, dog commentator in the last act of the movie, is just absolutely extraordinary and hilarious. Um, and yeah, it's 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 like a lot of Christopher Guest movies. It has a real like meanness to it, which often kind of blanches <laughs> into sweetness. Um, which I just think is is wonderful when he gets it right. Um, and yeah, it's 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 very silly. Um, the dogs are great to look at because they're also ridiculous. And uh, yeah, just a, a very very funny, um, laugh out loud funny movie. Um, yeah. And the final pick, Into the Spider Verse. Uh, <laughs> this is a very late edition. Actually, I just I just remembered how much fun I had watching this movie. This movie has three directors. And then, you know, Phil Lord and uh, Chris Miller as well being involved with it as producers and writers. It is essentially, a, it takes the uh, Mars Morales incarnation of um, Spider-Man, who is a uh, young black kid um, version whose, uh, I think his dad's a cop and uh, his uncle Ben sort of version is a, is actually a, a criminal guy himself. Uh, maybe I'm spoiling too much there. Um but yeah, it's an animated take on on Spider Man, which brings in all different versions and incarnations of um, uh, Spider Man from from different parallel worlds uh, to kind of come together to to fight an evil. Um, the thing I loved about it is it's a movie that refound the joy of animated action for me. I, I find so many action movies to be tedious grinds through whatever the fuck, um, and I thought that. Into the Spider-Verse, aside from being incredibly beautiful, has a kinetic um, and visceral sense to the action scenes that are massively lacking from uh, a lot of um, superhero movies. So for me, it really worked as a superhero movie. Um, You know, they directly quote from the um, runaway train sequence in Spider-Man 2, which is still really awesome. Um, And they do a version of it in there. And it feels like they kind of took that as as an inspiration or jumping off point. Has a really wonderful story and really great writing at the heart of it as well, um, and it kind of has a lot of respect for its property while still managing to be incredibly irreverent with it. I guess that's the same trick that they pulled with the, the Lego Movie, um, but yeah, it's just it's just um, really good, <laughs> a really really good movie. And I was amazed that they had three directors, uh, and the way that they made it was they just embraced um, chaos. Uh, and it all came together when it just as easily couldn't. I mean, these are guys who were fired off the um, Star Wars movie um, uh, for precisely that reason. So it's kind of amazing that at the same time, basically, they managed to pull together the best superhero movie I think anyone's made in the last 20-odd years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, it was, it was, I came out of that thinking, oh, was that the best film of the year? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> would be the best film of the year. Completely unexpected, but it's just it is so uh, nimble and literate. Even though obviously the the, the things that it is uh, referencing are other uh, aspects of of Spider Man, you know, which could lend it a sort of air of triviality um but it doesn't ever take itself too seriously even as it's doing quite clever things with this material 
Yeah, I like I like that it finds yeah. in in like its final act like what it does with the um, the villain of the piece and what he's going through at the time manages to be like really powerful <laughs> and actually like frightening like what's driving the villain in the movie and and what his kind of what he's trying to do it feels genuinely unnerving and, and sort of aberrant and I think that's that's really mm. cool it feels like a, a really scary villain in an era where often villains are just like you know oh well. Paul Dano's playing the Riddler now, great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all 50. We've, we've wow. ticked off, you know, bestiality, incest, murder, <laughs> talking bears who are just, you know, after lovely marmalade. All, yeah. all the kinds of things you want from, from a list of films, basically. Thank you for going on that journey with me. That's given me lots of things uh, I will uh, go away and check out at length. But if you wanted to um, revisit any of these in a larger format, I'd be up for that for sure. Sounds great. That's definitely all the time we had for this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to send us a question, you can do that at questions at Crate and Crowbar. You can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. You can listen to these recordings, which are uploaded as videos to YouTube, where you can find other stuff by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon, who are not charged for these special lock-ins. They're just charged for the ordinary video games podcast. You can back us, too, at patreon.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, creightingcrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody.